we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3.2 Demetrius, by the grace of God, Archbishop of Constantinople, New Rome, and Ecumenical Patriarch, to the very Reverend Archimandrite Kirill, Abbot, and to the Brethren of our Holy Patriarchal and Stravropegic Monastery of St. John the Baptist, in the county of Essex in Great Britain. Beloved children in Christ that are in my care, grace be with you, and peace from God. By this our patriarchal deed with joy we would inform you, in so far as you may be concerned, that in accordance with the proposal of the canonical commission, Staret Siloan of Manathos, spiritual father of the very Reverend Archimandrite Sophroni, founder and first abbot of your holy monastery, is now numbered with the saints of the church. A transcript of the relevant patriarchal and synodial act, duly constituted and subscribed in the sacred codex of our great and holy Church of Christ, is herewith dispatched to your holy monastery, with the fervent prayer that this new saint of the Church may constantly intercede in the behalf of the holy mountain, of the which he manifested himself a goodly son, for your holy monastery and each of you who strive therein, for all the Church and for the peace of the whole world. The grace of God and his infinite mercy be with your beloved reverence. In this month of April, 1988, signed Archbishop of Constantinople, Demetrios, fervent intercessor before God. Dedication to Demetrios, by the grace of God, Archbishop of Constantinople, New Rome, and Ecumenical Patriarch. Protocol number 823. Right it is, and exceedingly profitable for the fulfillment of the Church, that they who excelled in virtuous deeds while in the flesh, and are now departed this life, be venerated, and honored, and glorified, and celebrated yearly, and that the praise accorded to them that lived virtuously is directed to God himself, who is the source of every human virtue, as we are told by Gregory the Theologian. And, inasmuch as the praise of good deeds inclines and exhorts the slothful and idle to acquire virtue, while the lovers of virtue are made even the more inspired. Insomuch, therefore, as the monk Siloan, a son of Russia, who for nigh half a century lived on Manathos in the hallowed patriarchal and Stravropegic monastery, of the holy and all-glorious martyr and physician Pentelaemon, did excel in such goodly feats of virtue, and by sanctity and holiness of life did make himself to be a pattern of life in Christ, and a living icon of virtue, and in his diverse orthodox and edifying works manifest himself to be an apostolic and prophetic teacher of the Church, and the faithful, who bear Christ's name, who attained to the high spiritual measure, and became a vessel of the Holy Spirit, practicing a rare love, and for all these things was honored by God with the gifts of healing the, of the sick and suffering, and with amazing intuition. We, humbly, together with our most holy and right honorable metropolitans, our beloved brothers and concelebrants in the Holy Spirit, mindful of his godly conversation, his works, and his conduct, and careful of the general good of the faithful, decree, in accord with the customary practice of the Church and our fathers before us, to bestow upon him the honor due to holy men. Wherefore we decree synodically and do ordain, and in the Holy Spirit direct that from this day forth and forevermore, start Siloan of Manathos, be reckoned with the holy men and saints of the church, that he be entered into the calendar of saints, 
and venerated with hymns of praise on the 24th day of September, on which he departed gloriously to the Lord. In witness thereto and confirmation, this our present patriarchal and synodial act is made, drawn up, and signed in the sacred codex of our holy and great Church of Christ, and transmitted without change or alteration to the sacred congregation of the holy mountain, that it be laid in their archive. Anno Domino 1987, on the 26th day of the month of November, in Diction 11, signed Archbishop of Constantinople, Demetrios. Prologue. The Lord bade us take heed that neither our prayers or almsgiving or fasting nor any good deed be seen of men, lest we be like hypocrites seeking glory, which is not pleasing to our Heavenly Father, which seeth in secret, Matthew 6, 1-18. And not only divine commandment tell us to conceal our inner life from casual eyes, but natural instinct, like a categorical imperative, prohibits one from violating the sacred recesses of the soul. Prayer of repentance to the All-Highest is the intimate action of our spirit. Hence the wish to hide away out of sight, out of earshot, leaving the soul alone with God. This was how I lived the first decades of my repentance before the Lord. By the same token, bitter experience has more than once demonstrated how vital it is to avoid self-centeredness if we are not to fall victim to the spirit of vainglory which bereaves us of God. However, since becoming a spiritual confessor on Manathos over 40 years ago, I have slipped into disclosing the gifts come to me from on high. And with the continuation of my mission as a confessor, I find myself more and more often bearing my soul before my brothers. Now, old in years and approaching my end, wearied by physical infirmity and day-to-day -day cares, I notice that I am less sensitive to criticism. My path through life, my experiences may be somewhat out of the ordinary, but their essential content I share with millions of souls worldwide. So perhaps this my confession, or more accurately, maybe my spiritual autobiography, will help others to interpret their own ordeals. Of a certainty, no initiative of mine provoked the happenings in my inner life. But God of his providence, which is known only to him, vouchsafed to visit me, and as it were, communicate his eternal being. His holy hand mercilessly cast me, his creation, into indescribable depths, where, stunned and appalled, I contemplated realities that transcended my understanding. This is what I shall attempt to write of now. My mind did not immediately assimilate my experiences, and long years went by before they were transmuted into dogmatic perception. It was not my habit to study the scriptures or the works of the Holy Fathers of the Church, or the writings of contemporary theologians and the theology taught at theological academies for the sake of erudition. Before my visitation from God, I would peruse the Gospels or the Epistles without understanding them. Life itself showed me that, without real experience of God or cosmic spiritual phenomena, possession of intellectual information does not reveal the meaning of religion, does not lead to experimental knowledge of primal being, of God, that is. By knowledge, I mean ingress into the very act of eternity. Quote, this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God. John seventeen three. 
In the hours when divine love touched me, I recognized the approach of God. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. 1 John 4.16 After my visitation from on high, I read the gospel with a different awareness. Profoundly and gratefully rejoiced, at finding confirmation of my own experience. This wondrous congruity between the most vital elements of my consciousness of God and the data of the New Testament revelation is incalculably dear to my soul, a gift from above, God himself praying in me. I believe this. Yet at the time I lived it all as if it were my personal state. I was baptized almost as soon as I was born. According to the rites of our Orthodox Church, all the members of my body received the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Was it not this seal that rescued me from straying along alien paths? May I not attribute it to the many marvelous coincidences between my experience and the spirit of the gospel revelation? In this book, I concentrate mainly on some of the happenings which were vouchsafed to me. And at the same time, I think it important to stress how the whole course of my life in God convinces me that every lapse from right understanding of revelation inevitably reflects on the manifestations of our spirit in daily life. In other words, truly upright life depends on a proper understanding of God, the Holy Trinity, as revealed to us firstly on Mount Sinai, then through the incarnation of the Logos of the Father, and lastly, the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. These three phases of revelation concerning the triune divinity our church sees as the only truth, and they are the foundation on which I structured my life from the first days of my return to Christ. So then I entrust myself confidently to my reader in the hope that he will include me also in his prayers. Chapter 1 the grace of mindfulness of death. I find it impossible now to chronicle events of over half a century ago as I experienced them in my inner world. There is no keeping track of the soul's flight in the spiritual sphere. As the Lord himself pointed out to Nicodemus, quote, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. But canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so it is every one that is born of the Spirit. John 3.8. At the present moment, I find myself reliving various desperately painful passages, which were ultimately to afford me precious knowledge and be a source of strength for the spiritual effort required of each one of us. What I went through is incised, as it were, by a sculptor's chisel on the body of my life, and it is this that enables me to speak of what the right hand of God has done with me. As a child, I would ponder on eternity. The interest came naturally as the consequence of childhood prayers to the living God to whom my grandfathers and ancestors had gone, and also because other children who were my friends liked to be speculative, naively but in all seriousness about this mystery. As I grew up, I found myself reflecting more and more often on the infinite, on what goes on forever. With the outbreak of the First World War, the problem of eternity began to predominate in my mind. The news of thousands of innocent victims being killed at the front placed me squarely before a vision of tragic reality. 
it was impossible to come to terms with the fact of vast numbers of young lives being brought to a senseless, cruel end. And I might find myself drafted into their ranks with the object of slaughtering people I did not know, who in their turn would be trying to annihilate me as quickly as possible. And if the will of evil powers could create such a state of affairs, where was the sense of our presence in this world? And I, why was I born? I had only just begun to perceive myself as a human being. My heart was aglow with good intentions, seeking perfection like all young people, aspiring to the light of universal knowledge. Must all this be abandoned? And in such a fashion? And abandoned to whom and why? For what good? The prayers that I had repeated as a child declared that those who had gone before me had died in the hope of God, but now no longer a child, I had not a child's faith. Was I eternal? Was everyone else? Or were we all destined for the black night of non-being? At first I mused peacefully, but soon the question spread like a mass of molten metal, and a strange feeling took abode in my heart of the futility of any and every acquisition on earth. Outwardly, however, I continued tranquil, often laughing and behaving like everyone else. Something was quietly happening inside me, and my mind, stripped of all other interests, concentrated its attention within. A gigantic plow crossed and recrossed the vast expanses of my country, tearing up the roots of the past. Everyone felt goaded into action. There was unbearable tension on all sides. Furthermore, the world over, incidents were occurring which presaged the beginning of a new era in the history of mankind. But I was not particularly concerned. Life was crumbling around me, but my personal cataclysm was more intense, not to say more important, for me. Why was this? At the time, I could not reflect logically. My thoughts sprang from the state of my spirit. If I really die, that is, sink into non-being, it means that, like me, everyone else will also disappear without trace. So then, vanity of vanities. Authentic life is not for us. All happenings in the world are naught but a wicked mockery of man. My spirit's suffering had been provoked by the current cat catastrophic situation of the world outside, and I naturally identified the general disaster with my personal fate. My extinction would mean the disappearance of all that I had learned, of everything with which I was existentially linked, and this independently of the war. My inevitable death was not just mine, someone of no account, one of these little ones. No, in me, with me, all that had formed part of my consciousness would die, people close to me, their sufferings and love, the whole historical progress, the universe in general, the sun, the stars, endless space, even the creator of the world himself, he too would die in me. In short, all life would be engulfed in the darkness of oblivion. That was how I then saw my own death. The spirit that held me in thrall detached me from the earth, and I was cast into a somber realm where time did not exist. Perpetual oblivion, as the extinguishing of the light of consciousness, filled me with horror. This state of spirit settled in me, against my will. 
Everything that was happening in the world reminded me forcibly of the inevitability of an end to human history. A vision of the abyss was always there, only occasionally allowing me a moment's peace. My ever-increasing consciousness of death attained such force that the world, this whole world of ours, seemed like a mirage liable at any moment to vanish into an everlasting void. The reality of this non-earthly, incomprehensible other order took hold of me, despite my efforts to evade it. I can remember myself as I was then, behaving in everyday life like any of my contemporaries, though there were moments when I could not feel the earth under my feet. I could see it with my eyes in the ordinary way, but in spirit I was moving over a bottomless abyss. To this was added another, no less painful occurrence. A barrier rose up in front of me which felt like a solid wall, heavy as lead. Not one ray of light, mental light, not physical, could pierce this wall which was not a material one. It stood there, oppressing me for a long time. Apart from all that was taking place in the outside world, war, disease, and like calamities, the feeling that sooner or later I was doomed to die caused me unbearable suffering. And then, without reflection on my part, the thought suddenly occurred to me that if man is capable of such profound suffering, he is by nature a noble creature. The fact that with his death the whole world, even God, dies is possibly only if he himself of himself is in a certain sense the center of all creation. And in the eyes of God, of course, he is more precious than all other created things. The Lord knows my thankfulness to him that he showed no mercy on me and did not end his work which he had made, Genesis 2-2, until he had lifted me to the vision of the kingdom, be it only still in part, 1 Corinthians 13-12. Oh, the terrors of that blessed period. No one could have the stanima voluntarily to subject himself to such an ordeal. It makes me think of the cosmonaut who pleaded frantically with those below to save him from death in space. The radio registered his groans, but there was no way of going to his aid. Perhaps I may be allowed to draw a certain parallel between what that poor cosmonaut went through and my own experience when I felt myself sinking into the black pit. But my spirit appealed not to the earth below, but to him whom I did not yet know, but of whose being I was convinced. I did not know him, but somehow he was with me, possessed of all the means of my for my salvation. He fills all things with himself, but from me he hid himself, and I contemplated death not only in the body, in death's terrestrial forms, but in eternity. So it was, passively as it were, that profound being was uncovered in me. The material world lost its consistency, time, its duration. I grew weary, not understanding what was happening within me. At that stage, I was still entirely ignorant of the teaching of the fathers of the church and of their experience. Consequent on such a vital lacuna in my cognition, I got carried away by the mystical philosophy of the non-Christian East. In my folly, I supposed that this would show me the way out of the snare into which I had fallen. I wasted a lot of valuable time. Incidentally, much later on, having more than once experienced 
loss of grace because of my vanity, I sometimes reflected what grief, spiritual ignorance entails. But in my case, it was precisely this unawareness that made it possible for me to carry for long years God's rich gift to me, the grace of keeping death ever in mind, a grace which the early fathers prized so highly. Indeed, when I met with the writings of the holy ascetics, praising the greatness of this gift, I fell into the danger of losing the awareness that I had acquired of my own vacuity. In that unforgettable but far from simple or easy period of my life, I was more than once tempted into fearful wrath against my Creator. Tormented because I did not understand what was happening to me, I wrestled with God, thinking of Him as a hostile pontitate, the bitter adversary who had summoned me from nothingness, as Pushkin noted. All of us have the one natural root, and so I applied my personal circumstances to everyone else. My little mind rebelled in the name of all who were saddled with the superfluous gift of this life, and I regretted that I had no fiery sword with which to destroy the cursed ground, Genesis 3.17, and thus put an end to the whole preposterous farce. Quite a few other imbecile ideas occurred to me, but these two were probably the most extreme. Fortunately, the bile never penetrated into my heart, which was otherwise occupied. Somewhere in my spirit, hope lived on, more powerful than all the paroxysms of despair, that the Almighty could not be other than good. Were it not so, how could I have got the idea of a good being? And my inner attention concentrated on something intangible yet real. I shall never be able to express in words the peculiar riches and wealth, Ecclesiastes 5.19, of those days when the Lord, heedless of my protests, took me in his strong hands and wrathfully, so to speak, hurled me into the immensity of the world he had created. How can I put it? He was stern and severe, but he opened out before me the horizons of another being. My peregrinations really did take me along the road to martyrdom. The, the war with Germany was approaching its sorrowful conclusion for Russia. A few months before the end, another conflict broke out, this time civil war, in many ways more grievous than hostilities against a foreign country. The vision of the tragicality of human existence became engraved, as it were, on my soul and wherever I happened to be, the thought of death clung to me. In a strange fashion, I was split. My spirit dwelt in the mysterious sphere, which I cannot describe, while my mind and affectations continued as usual, like those of everyone else. I was in a hurry to live. I did not want to waste a single hour, anxious to acquire as much knowledge as possible, not just in my own sphere of painting. I worked hard in my studio, which was spacious and quiet, and traveled about Russia, then in Europe. I lived for several months in Italy and Germany before settling in France, where I had made many acquaintances, for the most part concerned with the arts. But I never said a word to anyone about my parallel life in the spirit. Nothing prompted me to such self-revelation. What was taking place in me proceeded from some superior source, independent of my will, or any initiative on my part. I did not understand what was happening in me, and yet I held it sacred.
the beauty of the world around combined with the miracle of the dawning vision enthralled me. But in my art, I tried to sense beyond visible reality, the invisible, timeless essence which afforded me moments of exquisite delight. However, the hour came when increasing mindfulness of death entered into outright conflict with my passion for painting. The struggle was neither brief nor easy. I became a sort of two-dimensional battleground. The grace of mindfulness of death did not descend to earth level, but summoned me to higher spheres. Art began to define itself as something lofty, transcending the material plane, in its finest achievements, touching on eternity. All this travail was in vain. The disparity was too obvious, and in the end, prayer won. I felt myself caught between the temporal form of existence and eternity. At the time, eternity presented me with its negative aspect. Death enveloped all things. It is impossible here to relate the various ways in which extinction of all life that I had contemplated manifested itself in my spirit. I can remember vividly one of the most typical of these days. I am reading, sitting at the table. I take my head in my hands, and suddenly I feel that I am holding a skull, which I ponder, as it were, from outside. Physically, I was still young and normally healthy. Puzzled as to the nature of what was happening to me, I tried to rid myself of the sensations that were interrupting the peaceful progress of my work. Quietly, I told myself, I still have a whole lifetime before me, 40 or more years, full of energy. And what happened? Suddenly, there came the instinctive and voluntary reply, And suppose you have a thousand years. What then? And the thousand years in my consciousness were over before I could frame the idea in words. Everything subject to decay lost its value for me. When I looked at people without thinking further, I saw them in the power of death, dying, and my heart was flooded with fellow suffering. I wanted neither fame from those dead mortals nor power over them. I did not look to people to like me. I despised material wealth and did not think much of intellectual assets, which afforded no answer to what I was seeking. Had I been offered centuries of happy life, I would have refused them. My spirit required eternal life and eternity, as I realized later stood before me, effectively regenerating me. I was blind. I had no understanding. Eternity was knocking at my door and my soul was locked tight in fear. Revelations 3:18-20 How I suffered but there was no solution anywhere save in prayer that had been engendered in me prayer to the still unknown or rather to him whom I had forgotten ardent prayer snatched me to its bosom and for many years never left me waking or sleeping my torment continued for a long time until my whole strength was exhausted then, quite unexpectedly, it seemed as if a fine needle pierced the thick wall, and a ray of light gleamed through the hairline crack. Someone who is ill often does not know what is the matter with him and recounts his subjective feelings to his doctor, expecting an objective diagnosis. In the same way, I am now simply recording the subjective history of what I experienced. 
I discovered that the fathers of the church taught of this form of grace, mindfulness of death, which is in a special spiritual state, quite unlike just knowing that one day we shall die. It draws the spirit away from worldly attractions. As a force descending from on high, it sets us above earthly passions, delivers us from the power of fleshly desires and attachments, and so naturally makes us live righteously. Though perhaps not in a positive form, it nevertheless clasps us close to the eternal. Mindfulness of death affords us the experience of being free from passions, though not yet the unqualified freedom manifest when divine love is sovereign. Neither does this mindfulness of death have an altogether negative aspect, which would be the antithesis of love. It arrests the action of the passions and thus initiates a radical change in the whole of our life activity and way of looking at things. The fact that this mindfulness of death makes us see our death as the end of the entire universe confirms the revelation given to us that man is the image of God and as such able to contain in himself both God and the created cosmos. And this too is the first step toward the consecration in us of the hypostatic principle. The experience prepares our spirit for a more real perception of the Christian revelation and the theology based on acquaintance with another level of being. When this constant mindfulness of death translated my spirit on to the eternal plane, it naturally meant the end of my puerile preoccupation with painting, to which I had become a slave. Straight is the gate, narrow the way of our faith. The whole body of our life is covered with wounds, and our sickness reaches the point where the tormented mind falls silent, somewhere beyond time. When we drop out of this existential contemplation, we discover in the depths of our heart new thoughts, not of our own devising, notions which anticipate future revelations of God. This blessed gift cannot be described in everyday words. Experience shows that it is assimilated only after a prolonged process of self-emptying. Then beyond all expectation, as it were, comes the uncreated light to heal our wounds. In the radiance of this light, the narrow way that we have traversed appears like the self-emptying of Christ, through which even such as we are granted sonship to God the Father. To the degree that absolute being is revealed to us, so do we become more acutely aware of our nothingness and squalor. And this is terrifying. Nevertheless, I regret that in my old age, the intensity of this blessed state has relaxed in me. The Lord gave me to dwell in the flow of his mercy, though I did not begin to understand. God moves in a mysterious way. But he did not leave me altogether in darkness. He brought me to the feet of blessed St. Siloan, and I saw that all my previous experience had prepared me to fathom his teachings. Blessed be the name of the Lord, world without end. Chapter 2 on the fear of God. Fear of God comes with spiritual enlightenment. Its nature is not to be explained by psychology. There is nothing animalistic about it. It has many degrees and forms of which just now let us consider the one most effective for our salvation. Fear of proving unworthy of God made manifest to us in light that never sets.
This righteous apprehension liberates us from all earthly terrors. Our Father, dauntless servants of the Spirit, withdrew into the deserts to live among wild beasts and poisonous snakes in conditions of utmost poverty such as people of our day cannot imagine. And they did this to be free, to weep over their remoteness from their beloved God. Not everyone can conceive how it is that spiritual men who scorn all the things of this world can lament no less, and even more, than mothers over the graves of their sons. Hermits weep when they contemplate the black abyss within themselves. The roots of the knowledge of evil grow deep and are not to be torn up of one's own strength. Those who are ignorant of this state of the spirit will never understand. Because this mystery is hidden from casual eyes, it does not mean that God is a respecter of persons, Acts 10.34, but that grace is entrusted only to those who entrust themselves to Christ God. And this grace is also the gift of God's love, without which tears will not flow. Divine love begets reverent audaciousness. Thus a handful of apostles, hitherto faint-hearted, after the descent of the Holy Spirit, were filled with courage and took on the whole of the rest of the world in spiritual struggle. Nearly all of them suffered martyrdom. When the governor of Patras threatened St. Andrew with crucifixion, the latter made the marvelous reply, If I feared the cross, I would not be preaching it. And he was crucified, and hanging on the cross extolled the death on the cross of his master, Christ. Inestimable are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Every true gift is none other than a flame of love. But for our hearts to become capable of receiving the love of Christ in its glowing manifestations, we must all, every one of us, endure many trials. People who live lives of ease atrophy spiritually and remain impervious to divinely universal Christ-like love. They live and die without their spirit rising upward to heaven. Gifts from on high are commensurate to our ascetical struggle. All who walk the way of Christ's commandments are regenerated in their very following of him, some more, some less, depending on the ardor manifested. Through being crucified together with God the Word made flesh, grace descends on the believer, likening him to God made man. This great gift also embraces in itself life-giving theology through a real dwelling in the light of love. The grace of repentance is given to him who in full faith accepts Christ's dictum that if we do not believe in his divinity and the absolute truth of all that he commanded us, the mystery of sin will not be unmasked to us in its ontological profundity, and we shall die in our sins, John 8, 21 and 24. The very conception of sin obtains only where the relation between absolute God and created man assumes a purely personal character. Otherwise, we are left with nothing but some intellectual assessment of the perfection of forms of existence. Sin is always a crime against the Father's love. Sin occurs when we distance ourselves from God and incline toward the passions. Repentance is always bound up with abstinence from sinful leanings. Humanism, too, involves overcoming various vices, but insofar as ignorance of the deep-rooted essence of sin, pride persists. This evil source remains entrenched 
and the tragicalness of history continues to increase. The Holy Fathers tell us that humility alone can save mankind, and pride alone is enough to bring us to the darkness of hell. But victory over the whole complex of the passions indicates the attainment of godlike being. All the passions find some sort of expression, be it figurative, psychological, fanciful. Fervent prayer of repentance ignores extraneous impressions and rational concepts. Other ascetic cultures likewise practice this detaching of the mind from visual and intellectual forms. But in the darkness of divestiture, the soul does not encounter the living God if prayer lacks due recognition of sin and genuine repentance. It is possible, however, to experience a certain sense of release from the kaleidoscopic process of everyday life. In profound grief at having lost God, the soul naturally strips herself of material and mental images, and the mind-spirit approaches the border beyond which light can appear. But this border, too, can remain impassable if the mind turns in on itself. Where the mind is so fixated, it can even see itself as light. It is important to know that this light is natural to our mind, since the mind was created in the likeness of God, revealed to us as light, in which there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1.5. Thus the transition is affected to another mode of thinking, to another and superior kind of understanding compared with scientific knowledge. Divested in a surge of repentance of all that is transient, our spirit, as from a high peak, sees the relativity and conditional character of all empirical cognition. And again and again, I repeat, God is truly experienced either as purifying fire or as light that illumines. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 111, verse 10. This fear descends on us from on high. It is a spiritual feeling, firstly of God and then of ourselves. We live in a state of awe by virtue of the presence of the living God together with awareness of our own impurity. This fear places us before the face of God to be judged by Him. We have fallen so low that our distress over ourselves turns into profound suffering, more painful than the torment of seeing ourselves in the darkness of ignorance, in the paralysis of non-feeling, in slavery to the passions. The dread is our awakening from the age-old sleep and sin. It brings us the light of perception, on the one hand, of our fatal condition, and on the other of the holiness of God. It is an astonishing phenomenon, without its naturally puritive, puritative action, the way to perfect love of God will not be open to us. It is not only the beginning of wisdom, but of love too. It will also alarm our soul with a revelation of ourselves as we are and bind us to God in longing to be with Him. Reverence before the God revealed to us is accompanied by dread. To realize oneself unworthy of such a God, there is the horror. To continue perpetually in hellish darkness, the nature of which we discover through the uncreated light, invisible still but which lets us see, begets a vehement wish to break out of the chains of our fall, to enter into the sphere of eternal light, to go to the God of holy love. Only through faith in God Christ 
do we arrive at the true criterion of the realities of the uncreated and created worlds. But for this it is essential that all our being, both temporal and eternal, be founded on the steadfast rock of the commandments of Christ. A great many of us frequent churches erected by man, but relatively few find the narrow way which leads to the heavenly tabernacle not made by hands. Matthew 7.14 At the outset of our repentance we see nothing, so it seems, except our inner hell. But in a strange fashion the light still invisible to us now penetrates like a vital sensation of the presence of God within us. If we cling tightly to the hem of the Lord's garment, the miracle of our growth in God will expand continually and the wondrous countenance of Jesus will begin to show itself to us. And with him we shall see how we men were projected by the Creator before the creation of the world. Lest the heart of man grow conceited by reason of the abundance of the revelations, providence causes him to travel a steep path up to this knowledge that exhausts mind and soul and body. Sometimes God removes his hand from the ascetic, and an alien spirit snatches the opportunity to disturb our heart and thinking. So we are never quite secure, and even when the beloved God pours out great mercies on us, we do not become puffed up. St. Paul writes about this in his epistles to the Corinthians, quote, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Second Epistle 12, 7. Thus it was at the beginning of Christianity. Thus will it be to the end of the history of this world. Indescribable are the gifts of our God. And how can we avoid being puffed up? Only with the help of that same divine strength, for God himself is humility. Chapter 3 Concerning Repentance, Part 1 Our Father dwells in the light which no man can approach, 1 Timothy 6.16. Invariably he remains a great mystery to us, even when we are filled with a sense of his nearness. But man, too, created in the image of the All-Highest, is also a precious enigma, and we must never cease trying to learn more and more about him and the loftiness of his calling before the foundation of the world. John 17:24. God is absolute being, the principle of all principles. He revealed himself to us as I am, as person hypostasis. Now we know him through the Son, who is of one substance with the Father, who revealed the Father to us. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. John 1.18 We know the Father likewise through the Holy Spirit. The Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you. John 14.26 And this living knowledge has delivered us from all the absurdity of intellectual aspiring to some supra-personal absolute, to pure being, transcending all that is, in fact, to non-being. The Logos, the word that was in the beginning with the Father and the Spirit, started his mission by calling the fallen to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4.17. He taught knowledge both of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, and they bore witness to him. 
It was the Logos who showed us the surest way to the Father, repentance. Now, at the close of my life, I would sing praises to this grace of repentance, echoing the psalmist of old, My God, my God, great and wondrous are thy works. Thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest light inaccessible. My fathers trusted in thee, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, and I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him, for he hath not despised my affliction, neither hath he refused my prayer. I sought him, and he hid not his face from me, and now my praise shall be of him in the great congregation. Psalm 22 Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. 2 Corinthians 12.2 That is just how it is when there is burning repentance. The contrite spirit in fatal longing after God the Savior is totally drawn to him, and man himself does not know when and how the change in him occurred. He forgets the material world and his own body. At the same time, he continues to be himself a persona, to be aware of himself more firmly and clearly than he ever was in his customary everyday state. He experiences himself as incorporeal spirit, so to speak. In such moments of blessing from on high, he receives knowledge of another form of being, indestructible being. It could happen that my spirit would find itself in a kind of illimitable space, which in strange fashion is transparent, though there is no light as such. I do not know how to define that fathomless sphere. My spirit would be completely absorbed in prayer. I saw not, knew not, save God. Paul the Apostle wrote to the Corinthians that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for man to utter, 2 Corinthians 12, 1-4. What did he have in mind when he spoke of the knowledge given to him from on high as words? Were they really words, our human words, or facts of the spiritual heaven whither he was caught up? His account only partially explained what happened. It is presumptuous of me but I think that St. Paul never forgot how he had persecuted the church of God, 1 Corinthians 15.9, and been blasphemous and a wrongdoer, and in his agony of repentance he was caught up to the third heaven. I remember that I felt my apostasy from Christ to have been a vile crime against his love. I had known this love in my early childhood. He had vouchsafed me to live it. When I repented of my madness, Prayer swept in me into the other world. So it is when we recognize our benightedness, when the infernal essence of our sin is revealed to us, then we become receptive to the action of grace, be it as illumination by uncreated light or some other form of being caught up, of knowledge or revelation. The fathers tell us that to be aware of our sin is a great gift from heaven, greater than a vision of angels. And I, over a long period, was spiritually blind. I did not see any sin in my break, break with the God of my childhood. I acted ignorantly, 1 Timothy 1.13. I supposed that I was improving on the gospel, which I abandoned 
without antagonism, merely telling myself that it did not afford higher knowledge. We can only comprehend the essence of sin by faith in the Theanthropos, in Christ God, as the action in us of uncreated light. John 8.24 It is a fact that man has non-determined persona. As spirit endowed with the freedom of self-determination, is able to perceive in himself a certain absoluteness, a divine nature, which, so to speak, does not require any other God. He can regard himself as related to and even of one substance with primordial being, decide on an act of self-divinization, return to his immortal being. I was given to this delusion in my youth, swayed by books, on Far Eastern mysticism and encounters with people from lands that have cultivated such esoteric doctrines for thousands of years. It is no simple matter to rid oneself of aberrations of this kind. You are persistently haunted by the suspicion that the experiment was a failure because you were unable to strip yourself of all the transitory phenomenon of cosmical existence. You ought to have put off your personality considering it merely a temporary form of existence that restricts at every level. In a word, willingly accept the disintegration of human personality in the nameless ocean of pure being, of the suprapersonal absolute. I could not help asking, who is it that perceives? Who is self-determining? And again, if I proceeded from the principle without beginning, how could such a profound degradation of my being have occurred? Why do I now seek so strenuously to be separated from the flesh in order to return to what I always was, and according to abstract thinking, have not ceased to be? Meditation released me from the distractions and cares of everyday life, afforded me hours of intellectual delectation, swept me up into imaginary spiritual spheres, lifted me into loftier circles. Philosophically, my mind could not conceive of the absolute principle as personal. This was partly because I was under a delusion common in the society in which I moved. I was confusing the notion of the person with the notion of the individual, whereas theologically they are diametrically opposed. As a child I have been taught to pray to the immortal Heavenly Father, to whom my fathers and forefathers had gone. In my childish faith, Matthew 18.3 and Luke 18.17, person and eternity easily combined into one. Thus, from an early age, the question of Christian personalism, as I perceived it, came to be one of vital importance. Could being, absolute being, be personal? My straightforward Eastern experiment was on the whole an intellectual one, the asceticism of the mental divestment of all that is relative. Gradually, I became convinced that I was on the wrong road, that I was abandoning true real being for non-being. Authentic knowledge was not yet on my spirit's horizon. This was a period of extreme tension. I felt like a tiny boat that is buffeted by the waves in the stormy dark, now riding high, now angrily hurled down. But he whom I had discarded as unnecessary did not turn away from me altogether, and himself sought an occasion to appear to me. Suddenly, he put before me the Bible text, the revelation on Mount Sinai. I am that I am. Exodus 3.14 Being is I. 
God, the absolute master of all the celestial worlds, is personal. I am. With this name, distant prospects were revealed to me which stretched into the unattainable. Not in the form of abstract thinking, but existentially, this personal God became overwhelmingly evident to me. The whole structure of my spiritual life was transformed. My spirit now knew, though not altogether, which direction to take. The light of the pole star reached me, and my mind rose to it. Yes, this God was dreadfully far away, but not out of reach of our spirit. To be a God apart from this true and only God was folly, worse than any other folly, and I gave myself over to desperate weeping, to bitter scalding tears, as I realized the horror of my fall. The Lord granted me blessed despair. And when I wept over myself with profound weeping, not daring to lift my thoughts to him, the light appeared to me. Thus did he lay the foundation of my new life, having begotten in me tears of repentance. Everything that had hitherto attracted me in this world now lost its fascination, and thinking of naught else I plunged deep into prayer. I cannot say that the struggle to free myself of all that I had pursued so passionately was easy or even brief. Tearing myself away from my painting was particularly painful. By the grace of repentance, the soul is lifted up to God, enraptured by the manifestation of light. At first, this light is no way visible, but its warmth softens the heart. The soul is torn in two, torn between the horror of seeing oneself as one is and the surge of hitherto unknown strength through beholding the living God. In a curious fashion, despair over myself prevailed to such an extent that even when he was with me and in me, I could not stop weeping for my sin, which appeared to me in its metaphysical essence to surpass all patent transgressions. A powerful desire to break with all that had gone before took the form of detestation over myself, as I had been in the past. The positive side of my repulsion of my passions lay in the fact that at the same time it presented itself as an act whereby I placed myself in God made manifest to me. In the intensity of hallowed self-hatred, prayer finds powerful energy and becomes like a hungry flame. The spirit then lives at one and the same time both its own death and benightedness and hope in God the Savior. I have no doubt that the strength of my prayer was not my own. It came from God. It exhausted me, physically and mentally. Then a marvelous peace would invade my soul. The atmosphere of another life would embrace me tenderly, bringing a feeling of the presence of God, who loved his creature, man. The struggle to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, Romans thirteen twelve, is a painful one. The age-old experience of holy ascetics demonstrates irrefutably that pride is the principal obstacle to the enlightenment by the Holy Spirit. In the prayer that the Lord gave me when I felt worn out, as it were, on every level, it seemed to me that I began to sense something of the humility enjoined by the commandments, Matthew eleven twenty nine. For then the radiant sphere would reveal itself to my spirit, and there would be no incompatibility between my spiritual state and the action of God in me. The humility of God is searchless, unconditioned, without parallel. It is an attribute of divine love, giving of itself without measure. 
generation after generation of those who have prayed before us, and indeed the Holy Scriptures also have addressed God after his theophany in respect of his relations to us, his manifestations. God is light. God is truth, love, mercy, and much else. I would make bold to add God is humility. Nothing that is unclean, which means proud, can draw near him. Pride is abomination, the opposite of divine goodness. Pride is the principle of evil, the root of all tragedy, the sower of enmity, the destroyer of peace, the adversary of divinely established order. In pride lies the essence of hell. Pride is the outer darkness where man loses contact with the God of love. Men loved darkness, John 3.19. Repentance alone can deliver us from this hell. Repentance is a priceless gift to mankind. Repentance is the God-given miracle that restores us after the fall, the outpouring of divine inspiration that stimulates us to rise to God, to our Father, for eternal life and the light of his love. Through repentance is our divinization accomplished, an indescribably momentous event. And this gift is born of Christ's prayer of Gethsemane, of his death on Golgotha and his resurrection, Luke 24, verses 45 to 47. Pride is the dark abyss into which man plunged when he fell. Heeding his own will, he became spiritually blind and unable to discern the presence of pride and the impulses of his heart and mind. It is only when the uncreated light descends on us through our belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ that we can perceive the metaphysical essence of pride. The grace of the Holy Spirit enlightens man's heart and discloses the malignant, fatal tumor within him. He who has experienced divine love finds himself revolted by the poisonous fumes emanating from the passion of pride. Pride separates man from God and shuts himself up in it. However gifted he may be intellectually, the proud man will ever be outside the all-embracing love of Christ. Intoxicated in paradise by the sweet poison of Luciferian self-divinization, man went mad and became the prisoner of hell. Turned in, centered on himself, sooner or later he will end up in a tedious void, the void from which the Creator had called him into this life. Resorting for compensation to the world outside, he submits to perversions of all kinds and finds himself capable of every sort of crime. The manifestations of pride are innumerable, but they are all distort the divine image in man. Outside Christ, without Christ, there is no resolving the tragedy of the earthly history of mankind. The atmosphere reeks with the smell of blood. Day after day, the universe is fed with news of the slaying or torture of the vanquished in fratricidal conflicts. Black clouds of hate screen the heavenly light from our eyes. People make their own hell for themselves. Unless and until we allow repentance to chain us totally, there will be no deliverance for the world, deliverance from the most terrible of all curses, war. Better be killed than kill is the attitude of the humble man of love. Matthew 10, 28, and verse, chapter 5, verses 21 to 22. Our spirit dwells in a state of grateful delight when the holy mystery, which transcends the created mind, is revealed to us. 
the living God with whom we may converse. His greatness intimidates us. His humility startles us. And however high we may ascend in our reaching for him with the whole strength of our being, we continue joyfully aware of the process of ascending, yet at the same time he appears to us more and more unattainable. And sometimes we grow faint. A kind of despair seizes us. We see ourselves about to fall, and suddenly he, unexpected now, is with us and embraces us with his love. God is wondrous strange. The soul would like to ask him, Where wast thou when my heart was so heavy, but cannot find words seeing him with her? The point of being abandoned by God is to show us that we are not yet ready, that the path has not yet been followed to the end, that we must face still more exhaustive self-emptying, drink of the cup that he drank of, Matthew twenty twenty two, And so, in reverent awe and in the light of groping, growing hope, the soul resigns herself, and the heart rejoices over the increase in her knowledge of the ways of God our Savior. The imaginative mind is not suited to theology. Aware of the harm of dwelling in the sphere of the imagination, blessed Saint Siloan strove to stand before God with a pure mind. Man can acquire this condition by straining with his whole being for the repentance which the risen Christ gave to the world. There is no explaining this state of our spirit, nor can any description enable one to live it. To many, it seems inconceivable. Indeed, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19.26 Prayer with a pure mind is a rare phenomenon. The approach to it is, first and foremost, through profound grief of the spirit as it recognizes the deprivation which nothing can make up for, separation from God. This grief is an agony, the pain of it worse than a knife. If not accompanied by repentance, it seems to me that the suffering can assume a disastrous nature and maybe lead to death. But where there is prayer, it is a wondrous gift of divine love. The agonizing struggle rouses in the soul the hitherto unknown energy of prayer that throbs day and night. And unexpectedly, not by design, prayer becomes pure. Then does man really live in the radiant reality of the Holy Spirit. And for God and for himself he will appear in the full nakedness of his being. In such prayer as this our spirit is freed from the spells of phantom truth of the many obscure attractions in the darkness of ignorance. To pray was natural for me from childhood, but a day came one morning as I was walking along a street in Moscow when the thought forced itself into my mind. The absolute cannot be personal. Eternity cannot lie in the psyche of gospel love. It was a curious business. The idea hit me like a hammer. I shall always remember the spot I then began, it required a certain amount of effort, to make myself stop praying and go in for meditation of a non-Christian character. One night soon afterwards, I was awakened in a way that I did not understand. I saw my whole room flooded with patches of vibrating light. My soul was troubled. The vision repelled me. I felt something like the aversion mixed with fear that one feels if a snake gets into the house. I left my room and went into the sitting room where I stayed a while before returning to bed. The light had gone and I fell asleep again. 
Soon after this, while I was in, engaged in my meditations, which had developed a certain degree of intensity, I saw my thinking energy like a faint light inside and all around my skull. My heart, meanwhile, continued to live separately from my brain. Years later, after the mercy of the high God had visited me, I noticed that the uncreated light <clears throat> is tranquil, integral, steady, acting on the mind, the heart, and the body too. In contemplating it, one's whole being is in a state unknown to the earth. The light is the light of love, the light of wisdom, the light of immortality, and wondrous peace. After my new discovery of Christ, my eastern phase, which had lasted some seven or eight years, appeared to my spirit like the most abominable crime against the love of God, whom my soul had known from early childhood. I was overcome by a sort of pious horror at the thought that I, faithless and a renegade, would forever remain unworthy of such a God. It is not without pain that I recall now that terrible and withal wonderful period of my life. I would pray like one demented, weeping copious tears, afflicted to my very bones. As I prayed, I would feel fire within me burning up everything. I do not know how I survived. I shall never be able to find words for that fire which I experienced and the despair, and at the same time the strength that held me in ceaseless prayer of extreme tension for years on end. At the moment, I understood nothing. But now I cannot find ways to show God my gratitude for his mighty hand of the holy sculptor. I suffered in every fiber of my being. I marvel at him. He converted my diabolical loathsomeness into something different, less remote from his ineffable light. I was granted long hours of such prayer from which I never wanted to come back to this world. I have lost it. I live in dread. What will happen to me? Shall I ever find what I let slip? God showed me his providence for me when he granted me the grace of repentance. Luke twenty four forty seven. At first, this fearful yet blessed spell in my life was all hopeless grief and prayer often accompanied by a sense of fire. I did not recognize the nature of this fire. I did not even try to account for it since my mind was wrapped in him, in my God. The fiery flame burned something in me, not without causing me pain. Many years later, when I was on Mount Athos and my spirit at peace, I would remem remember what I had gone through like a circumstance which had given me new birth and launched me into a new orbit, in another sphere of being, and I would give thanks to God. The period of desperate repentance that I have just described, I am inclined to see as an event, perhaps not only for me. How is it possible not to marvel in my putting off of the temporary form of existence I traveled somewhere far from ordinary life? And lo, his hand reached me there, it was the moment of the second creation of myself by his will. I was called anew from non-being into the light of life. How strangely it all happened and went on happening. In the impulses and actions which our reason justifies, we cannot see sin. The real vision of sin belongs to the spiritual plane from which we plunged at the time of the fall. Sin is recognized by the gift of the Holy Spirit combined with faith in the personal absolute, our Creator and Father. It is a question of our personal relations with Him. 
and of nothing else. Marvelous is the moment of our living encounter with him. Yes, I am a criminal offender against his love. I did not know him as one should, but I cannot say that I was innocent in my ignorance. The soul in every one of us is intuitively aware of a certain conflict with our conscience before we perform the inner act of inclining our will to something that cuts us off from God. So it was with me in my youthful years, when I accepted the idea suggested to me by Satan, as I have related above. When I try to investigate the inner workings of my conversion to God after my fall, I picture it like this. The divine light, the light of the Holy Spirit, is somewhere unseen and behind me, and from far away enlightens me, shows me the spiritual place where I am. And the name of this place is Hell. I do not see the light as such, but it opens my eyes so that I behold the darkness in which I live. I cannot understand the darkness without the contrast of light. The invisible presence of this light creates a situation in which I gradually begin to contemplate the idea of my Creator before the foundation of the world. John seventeen twenty four. My new, still only incipient knowledge of the living God leads me to perceive in Christ the very image in which we are made. Genesis 1, 26. And my heart is filled with sadness. That's how we ought to be, each one of us, in order to live our oneness, inviolate throughout the ages, with the Father of all that is. O oh, grief, to be bereft of that! The idea of eternity was granted to me in my childhood. I was given a certain intimation of, or approach to, that experience of uncreated being. But I am dying in the senseless darkness of my ignorance on every plane. This darkness stood before me like a solid wall, separating me from God, insuperable of myself. St. Paul called this wall the law of sin, Romans 8.2. Our God is light in which there is no darkness, 1 John 1.5. In other words, he refuses to be associated with our darkness. We must cleanse ourselves from the pollution that has hold of us. Otherwise, we shall not enter into the kingdom of truth and light. Revelation 21:27. The moment I was given the grace of repentance, I realized that I was in hell. However painful the route may sometimes be, there is no other gateway to divine eternity for the fallen sons of Adam. Profound grief over myself, but there, beyond, I see light. The ecstasy of my joy in God torments me when I try to find expression for it. I was brought up to avoid high-flown language, and now all language seems dull and lifeless, incapable of expressing my gratitude to God. When God's touch, having first illumined us with light, sets us on a new, hitherto unknown and lofty path, we meet with two hells, one of repentance, the other of love. Repentance is tied up with the two commandments, the more important of which is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, Luke 10.27. We do not have this love, and it costs a mighty struggle to acquire it. The second, no less afflicting step is bound up with the other commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. The Lord never sinned. 
John 8.46, Luke 23.41, and therefore had no need of repentance. But having taken upon himself the sin of the world, John 1.29, he descended into the hell of love for our neighbor and went to the last extreme, that is, to the final limits of the second commandment. Not many know this hell because there is little love in us for our neighbor, which means every fellow human being, the whole vast multitude of mankind that has ever lived. Christ's divine love expends itself in the service of the entire human race, from Adam to the last man to be born of a woman. He gave his soul for his friends and his enemies. Could we perceive the real significance of the second commandment? We should see that we are not yet started on our repentance. But if it were given to us to live the commandment to our utmost, then we should know the one God in three persons and our own immortality. Matthew 16, 28. Our existence in the flesh makes it extremely difficult clearly to appreciate and live the absoluteness of the task before us. The flesh always imposes a certain veil of imperfection and ignorance. However, when there is complete faith, unwavering and free from doubt, the grace of the Holy Spirit gives to the burningly repentant sinner the experience of descending into hell, together with the experience of the hell of love and the resurrection of the soul while still in this life and this body. One of the most difficult problems for the landscape painter is the constantly vibrating blue sky. Colored photographs show the blue solid like paintwork on a car body. My description of my spiritual life with the constant repetitions may seem just as tedious, though actually it has been full of dynamic contrasts. But I take the risk and continue the task embarked on to confess what I have lived through. It was given to me to know the living God from my earliest childhood. There were occasions when coming out of church, I would see the city, then the whole world for me, lit by two kinds of light. Sunlight could not eclipse the presence of another light. To think of it brings back the feeling of quiet happiness that filled my soul at the time. I have forgotten almost all that happened in that period of my life, but the light I have not forgotten. When I was about 18, I turned my back on the God of my childhood. I did not commit any crime punishable by law, but my mind and heart were open to every sort of evil. Our God is intangible, invisible, searchless. Inscrutable, too, are the workings of his providence for us. How did his gentle but powerful hand catch hold of me when, with the stubbornness of youthful folly, I rushed headlong into the dark abyss of non-being? The heavenly fire burned into me, and its heat melted my heart. Bitterly repentant, I prayed prostrate on the floor. Oh, the shame I felt in those years, my arrogant attempt to surpass God, in whose name I had been baptized, confronted me like the nightmare it was. My sin felt like a suicide, not suicide of corrupt mortal flesh, but a defectation from the eternity of my Creator, who of his immense love wished to give me his radiant infinity. But I had knocked on the doors of death, not in time, but beyond its boundaries. I detested myself and for long years wept out of sorrow and shame. I wept bitter tears, Matthew twenty-six seventy-five. I do not know, yet perhaps I do to some extent, how Peter wept after his denial of Christ 
and how, according to holy tradition, he never forgot, and so at the end of his life sought to be crucified upside down. Certainly, I do not remember having harbored any feeling of hostility toward Christianity when the idea of transcendental contemplation took hold of me. It merely seemed to me that I was abandoning the lower plane, the psychic, emotional, love God and love thy neighbor. But when I realized the spiritual significance of my aspirations to repeat Adam's fall, I was horror-stricken and my prayer was marked by self-loathing. In that prayer of repentance, my mind was not turned on myself. I did not analyze my condition. I trembled with fear, counting myself unworthy of forgiveness. I stood, as it were, before the dread judgment seat of the Supreme Tribunal. My attention was entirely concentrated on my judge. I had no words, and I prayed dumbly, with no self-justification. There was no hope in me. Yet maybe it would be truer to say that I prayed with the hope that lies beyond all despair. Praying thus, I sometimes lost awareness of my body. I would discover this only after I returned to my usual consciousness of the outside world. At the same time, my spirit would enter some mental sphere, the boundaries of which it is impossible to reach, perhaps because there are no boundaries. In this spiritual abyss, I sought only God. I was entirely alone. Somehow I knew that if the Lord so willed, he would come to me without difficulty, wherever I was. And he did so. In this form of prayer called pure, because my spirit was divested of all creature things, I do not know how to describe what happened to me. But in it, in this prayer, only God existed for me. In all creation, there was only God and myself, a pitiful monster. Part 2, Concerning Repentance and Spiritual Warfare The whole of our earthly life, from birth to our last breath, in its final conclusion will appear as a single act without duration in time. Its content and quality will be seen at a glance. Imagine an absolutely clear glass filled with water. One look will tell whether the water is clean or not, and if dirty, how dirty. So will it be with us when we cross into the other world. Every impulse, however transient, of our heart, every thought, leaves its mark on the general sum of our life. Suppose that just once during the whole course of my earthly existence an evil thought crossed my mind. Murder, for instance. Matthew fifteen nineteen. This single thought will leave a black spot on the body of my life, unless it be wiped out by repentant self-condemnation. Nothing can be hidden. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Luke 12, verse 2 to 3. We often reassure ourselves with the thought that nobody saw us. No one knows what we think or do. But when we begin to strive our utmost to prepare for eternity, everything is different, and we yearn to be rid of all that is soiled within us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 8-9 Through sincere repentance and vigorous self-conviction before God and our fellows, the inner man is cleansed. The water in the glass, passed through the spiritual filter of repentance, becomes pure again. Hence, when I confess, I 
charge myself with every evil, since I cannot find any sin in the whole world that I have not committed, if only by permitting it to flash through my mind. The very possibility of such an impulse of my spirit shows my sinful state. And who can be quite sure that he is beyond the reach of wicked ideas? And where is the guarantee that the moment when a bad thought comes to me will not be transmuted into eternity? So long as we have life, there is the possibility of reformation. But what happens to us after we depart hence? We do not yet know. On the material plane, a mass, given a sufficiently powerful thrust, can theoretically, once it has left the sphere of gravity, fly at great speed for ever in infinite cosmic space. Will it not be thus with our soul? Drawn by love for God, having left the body, the soul will go to God, or contrariwise, having discarded God, she will be cast out into outer darkness, Matthew 8:12, into the never-ending torment, which is the opposite of a state of love. Therefore, insofar as we are able to see ourselves, we must thoroughly confess our sins, lest we carry them with us after we die. Direct resistance to evil or vain thoughts is not always the best way of combating them. It is often wiser to think on the Father's mighty, pre-eternal design for us, to know that even before the foundation of the world we were chosen to be perfect. See Matthew 5.48, Ephesians 2.10, and 1.4-5. is vital if we are going to live as we should. To minimize God's initial idea for us, is not just an error, but a really black sin. Those who do not see in themselves, and worse, do not see in their brethren any permanent worth, become like wild beasts in their mutual relations and readily take to slaughtering each other. Oh, what a paradoxical mixture is man. On the one hand, he inspires delight and wonder. On the other, sad bewilderment at his cruelty and savagery. The soul decides to pray for the world, but such prayer never attains its ultimate purpose, since no one and nothing can deprive people of the freedom to yield to evil, to prefer darkness to light. Prayer offered to God is veritable and proper fashion, in spirit and in truth, John 4.23, is an imperishable, invaluable reality. Psychologically, we may forget about it in the bustle of daily life, but it is preserved forever by God himself, Luke 10.42. On the day of resurrection and judgment, all that we have done of good in the course of our life will stand at our side to justify us, and vice versa, all the bad will convict us if we have not repented in due fashion. Ugly deeds and unkind words can be wiped clean by tears of repentance, however odd and logically impossible this may seem. The negative consequences to ourself of our sins are healed. The bad effects of our behavior towards our neighbors are effaced. Fullness of life is reconstructed by divine power, not though through the one-sided intervention of God, but always in conjunction with repentance and a right disposition, since God performs nothing with man without man's cooperation. God's participation in our individual life we call providence. This providence is not at all like pagan fate. At certain decisive moments, we do actually ourselves choose from the various possibilities that are offered. When different paths lie before us, then normally we ought resolutely to move toward the ultimate good that we are seeking. 
This choice inevitably implies being ready to accept sacrifice. On such occasions, our spiritual freedom is particularly obvious. In most cases, unfortunately, prompted by worldly considerations, people forsake the direction to the kingdom of light indicated by God. Thus does man fall into the deceptive round of passions that prevent him from seeing the wished-for dawn. Every choice, however, must involve suffering and self-denial. And when we elect for the will of God, then every sacrifice likens us to Christ. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Every one of us must nolens volens suffer the mystery of death for the sake of becoming more like Christ. After we have crossed that still unknown threshold, God our Father will lead us into the realm of eternal day. Such is our hope in Christ which must be realized, since all his promises are true and unfailing, as the age-old experience of our church has shown. The gospel, glad tidings, both begins and ends with a call to repentance. And the teaching of the holy ascetics and fathers of the church is permeated with the consciousness that every time man prays to God, not as a sinner, his prayer fails to reach the divine throne. Since the Son of God did not come to call repentance to those who think themselves righteous and so stand outside the truth, 1 John 1, 8, but those who acknowledge themselves to be sinners, Matthew 9.13. The foul sea that lies between us and our image of paradise, we can cross only in the boat of repentance rowed by the oars of fear. And if the boat of repentance in which we cross the sea of this world to God is not rowed by the oars of fear, then we drown in the foul sea. Repentance is the boat, fear is the navigator, and love the divine harbor. Into this harbor come all that labor and are burdened with repentance. And when we reach the harbor of love, we have reached God, says Isaac the Syrian. Repentance lies at the root of our whole ascetic life. Ephraim of Syria left us the prayer to pray. Grant me awareness of my own transgressions. Again and again I repeat that to see one's sin is a spiritual act of extraordinarily great price for all who seek the face of the living God. Indeed, this act is the working in us of God himself, who is light. Over the decades of my ministry as a confessor, I have come to the sad conclusion that there are very few people whose hearts have shown them the real nature of sin. Most of us base ourselves on human morals, and if we do adopt higher standards, it is still not enough. Of the various ways that lead to recognition of our sins, the most important is belief in the divinity of Christ, for which belief the love of the Holy Spirit descends on man. He who has had experience of the sacred fire of divine love naturally strives to continue in this blessed state. And if he performs any act or has any impulse which results in a weakening of the feeling of divine love, then this very lessening of grace without words or rational analysis is enough to indicate his defectation from divine truth. Then he resolutely turns to God in repentant prayer, through which forgiveness comes like a renewal in love. And the greater the grace felt during the hours when the Holy Spirit was with him, the more painful and profound will be his repentance. Such a man lives before God simply, without deliberating with himself, governed by love and fear of God. He could even rise to perfection in holiness without being aware of it. Luke 
Another means of recognizing sin is to judge oneself against the divine word. By keeping a mental check on our inner state, we see that we are not following the commandments and therefore offer repentance. If this method is to be successful, it is essential to make a fervent study of the Savior's law, for the commandment of God is exceeding broad, Psalm 119.96, and his thoughts are very deep, Psalm 92.5. The human conscience and the human mind and their capacity to penetrate into the realm of the Spirit fall far below the commandments that we have been given, 1 John 3.20. Fullness of repentance involves both heart and mind, which eventually merge into one in an act of genuine eternal life. God is love, 1 John 4.8, and he knows himself and us absolutely, and everything in him is one. So man must attain, first and foremost, the state of divine love and then knowledge of God, 1 John 4.7-8, and self-knowledge, a penetration into the pre-eternal concept of God for man. Here is an instance to illustrate my idea. St. Simeon, the new theologian, writes concerning himself that over and over again a light appeared to him, and he loved the light and was drawn to it, but for a long time did not know who this light was. At last, one day when the light appeared, he summoned up to the temerity to ask, Who art thou? And he received the answer and knew that what appeared to him as light was Jesus Christ. After that, he not only dwelt in love, but also knew this love. The combination of what we experience with what we know brings certainty into our life. Similar occurrences in the history of other ascetics lie at the root of the church's teaching on the uncreated nature of the light that appeared to them. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it, it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached among all nations. Luke twenty four forty six. Inexpressibly great is the gift of repentance. It is linked with the ingress of our spirit into the mysteries of the unoriginate God, our Father. Only through repentance can we apprehend existentially the revelation of how the pre-eternal counsel of the Holy Trinity conceived of man before the creation of the world. Knowledge of God's omnipresent is open to all reasoning creatures everywhere. But schools of theology and theological tomes are far from sufficient for its assimilation. In some inexplicable fashion, true knowledge filters into our innermost being when He is with us. The operative indwelling of God in us means that we are introduced into the very act of divine being. And this is precisely the way that our spirit is given the, the lively knowledge of him, which shall not be taken away. Luke 10.42 The surest means to this good end is prayer of repentance, as granted to us through faith in Christ. Unless we contemplate the primary creative idea of God concerning man, unless we experience the holiness of God, regret over the loss caused by our fall, we will not be strong enough. We may suffer in our given situation, we may partly and at distance, as it were, feel the divine fire and, insofar as our understanding permits, repent. But quite a different repentance, total now, grips our whole system when the uncreated light discloses our inner hell and at the same time allows us to sense the holiness of the living God. 
As we shed bitter tears over our sins, in miraculous fashion we become aware of God himself in us, clasping us close in fatherly love. No effort on our part can retain this delicate spirit. It departs, and once again we are plunged in the darkness of death. We seek him, but he that filleth all in all, Ephesians 1.23, is inaccessibly remote. When I measure myself against the commandments of Christ, to love God with all one's being and one's neighbor as oneself, I do not possess the means to judge how far distant I am from my purpose. And it seems then that I still have not acquired repentance, though its flame has touched me and made itself known. I remember being impressed by St. Sisios's plea when the Eternal Lord appeared to him as he lay dying. Give me time to repent, O Christ. His brethren standing around his sick bed asked, Have you not repented yet? And the saint replied, Believe me, brothers, I have not yet begun to repent which his brethren interpreted as proof that Sissio had attained the utmost perfection possible on this earth. Paradoxical as it may seem, this is just the way in which we sense divine inf infinity. Our weary thirst for the living God torments us past bearing, wrenching our spirit from all created things to transport us into an indescribable pit of spiritual space where there is naught and no one save the God of love and a vision of his boundlessness. We see no light as such, but nor is it dark. Since in some strange fashion the abyss is transparent with nothing to hinder the eye from perceiving the depths without ever reaching the far brink. Those who believe utterly in Christ as God, our Creator and our Savior, in their agony of repentance are given the experience both of hell and of resurrection while they are still in the body. Repentance is not just a mental action, like a change in our intellectual approach to everything that happens in the world. This mutation is normally accompanied by a feeling of bitterness over oneself as one is. The heart is filled with regret at the breach with the Holy God. There is no greater grief than this feeling that I am indeed the most wicked of all men and all things. The whole of our earthly experience is temporal, but our relations with God lie outside time. Cast into the expanse of the eternal spirit through prayer springing from hatred for oneself, we pray without reference to ourselves. Contemplation of divine realities is possible only if one's spirit is to some extent in harmony with the object of contemplation. How indeed could anyone in the clutches of pride expect the humble Holy Spirit to dwell in him? Could anyone in the convulsion of hatred or other black passion Behold the unimaginable light of divinity. Or despising even one of these little ones, Matthew 18.10, preach divine love. So then, it is only when a man consciously abides in the grace of the Holy Spirit that the vision of immortal glory and undying light is vouchsafed to him. Every true vision of God is a gift from the high God making us participants in his life, granting us humility and peace, wisdom and knowledge, love, and goodness. When the uncreated light finds a dwelling place in us, life without beginning is imparted to us. By virtue of this, those who are saved become without beginning, not in essence, but by grace. Here on earth, 
The measure of the gift that we have received is based on the extent of our likeness to Christ in our thinking, our feelings, our supplications. For in us there must be one mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5 Who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. Hebrews 5.7 Abiding in Christ's spirit, we become sons of the eternal Father and God's while still in this life. It may not be out of place to emphasize that for the outside observer with no experience of Christian life, there is nothing worthy of attention in such a bearer of immaterial light. The believer, often an ascetic in the desert, may be a pitiful creature in appearance, clad like a beggar, defenseless before the prince of this world, but his inmost spirit is that of a truly great man. The kingdom to which he belongs by the gift from on high is not of this world. At first, repentance is all bitter taste, but soon we feel the energy of new life producing a marvelous change in our mind. The very movement toward repentance appears like a discovery of the God of love. The inexpressibly splendid image of primordial man is revealed to us more and more. Beholding this beauty, we begin to realize how terribly distorted the Creator's primary idea for us has become. The light proceeding from the Father gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 He himself said of this, No man can come to me except the Father draw him. John 6.44 The grace of repentance reveals in us the image of the Son of the Father. Oh, how painful the process is. Our heart is pierced as with a white hot sword. How portray the horror that grips us, and how relate the act of God's recreation in us. The image of the only begotten Son of one substance with the Father, the Logos, kindles a strong desire in us to become like Him in all things. And once again we find ourselves in a paradoxical situation, we suffer, but in a hitherto unknown way. This suffering inspires us. It does not destroy. There is uncreated strength in it. We are cast into divine infinity. We are amazed at what is happening to us, surpassed by the majesty of it. We shrink into ourselves, knowing ourselves for what we are, while at the same time God comes forward to embrace us like the father of the prodigal son. Luke 15:20 Fear and trembling depart from us giving place to wonder at God he clothes us in rich garments he adorns us with great gifts the noblest of which is all embracing love our initial suffering of repentance is transformed into the joy and sweetness of love which now takes a new form compassion for every creature deprived of divine light there is rapture too and that we begin to perceive God's will for us. We see ourselves drawn into the creative process of God himself. We have collaborated with him in our own restoration from our fallen and distorted state. And lo, he accepts us as co-workers with him in his field. Such are the consequences of our rebirth in the spirit through repentance. The Lord, in the days of his flesh, offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard, and that he feared. 
Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, of whom we have many things to say, of the deep places of Christian life, and hard to be uttered to people lacking the necessary experience of this wondrous sphere. See Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. Unto all them that obey him, Christ constituted himself the one path and does not refuse to make them like him in prayer. What can I, the least of all men, say? In the course of my long life I have offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. It was despair over myself when measured against Christ's commandments that led to such prayer. Sometimes the bitter self-hatred that cast me into an indescribable abyss would recede, giving place to light and love. I would think that my love was becoming sure and steadfast. It seemed to me that I was on the threshold of what, of that which entereth into that within the veil, Hebrews 6.19, and would never want to return to the earth I had left. The Lord, however, did not vouchsafe to take me. Many a time have I thought of how God called Moses out of the burning bush and sent him to Egypt, where for forty years he languished, struggling the whole while with the shabby passions of those it was his business to save, who themselves were not seeking salvation. Of course, I do not compare myself with the prophets or the apostles or fathers. It is just that here and there I seize on an analogy without which it would be impossible to find one's bearings. God, in his measureless humility, did not reject me, but gave me to contemplate his uncreated light. Christ became my life. I worshipped him and could imagine no parallel to him. He is for me the one true Lord and God. I live in almost constant dread of forfeiting his mercy because of my perpetual stumbling. I may argue with him, make innumerable attempts to avoid his cross, but still I embrace Christ's cross and somehow or other bear my own cross as ordained for me. Matthew 16, 24. And now I bless my God who has granted me regeneration in fervent repentance. Chapter 4, Spiritual Mourning Here at the very outset I find myself in difficulty. How am I going to discuss tears with my contemporaries who think it is disgraceful to weep about anything at all? Of course, it is shameful to cry over transitory matters like one's career or property, privileges or social position, health, and the like. But the weeping that we are to consider now applies to our relations with the eternal God. This sort of weeping belongs on another plane of being. It is our response to contact with the Divine Spirit. The Holy Spirit came. One's heart surged with imperishable love. The mind was struck with a new vision. The Spirit transported into the sphere of uncreated being. The fire of Gethsemane prayer, of compassion for the whole suffering creature world, touched our fragile self and we surrendered to the power of love. Thus did the apostles and fathers weep when they received the heavenly blessing. This fire is sent on the earth of our hearts by Christ himself. Luke 12:49. Only on rare occasions does the holy power of this love that proceeds from the Father flow into us to such an extent it would be too much for our nature in its present state. 
our regeneration usually begins with a manifestation of uncreated light, which opens our eyes to the mystery of our separation from God, and the heart knows no other way save tears to express its sorrowful love before God. It is naive to think that one can follow Christ without shedding tears. Take a dry nut, put it under pressure, and you will see the oil oozing out. Something similar happens with our heart when the invisible fire of the divine word scorches it all round. In its brutish egotism and worse pride, our heart has turned to stone. But there truly is a fire, Luke 12:49, able to melt the hardest metal or stone. Whoever in the course of his life has never really felt the approach within himself of this fire will not understand what I am talking about. The first gospel word, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 17, bids us make a radical change in our whole life, a change that can only be realized by the fusion of our ardent desire with the action of the heavenly fire to soften the heart, which once softened is reforged by the blows of a powerful hammer. Spiritual weeping is totally different from ordinary weeping. It is part and parcel of continuous mindfulness of God and grievous sorrow at being separated from Him. Violent, emotional crying exhausts the body, extinguishing its vitality, whereas spiritual weeping cleanses one from malignant passions and so quickens one's whole being, purging the mind of salacious images. Spiritual courage fills the soul, bringing release from anxiety and fear. The more deeply this penitent weeping takes hold of us, the more radically are we liberated from a whole series of seemingly natural needs, as well as from such destructive passions as pride and anger. The joy of liberation hitherto unknown drops anchor within us. Only the man who has never felt the murderous power of sin within him could hold that the transfiguration of our nature as ordered in the gospel is possible without tears. Stemming initially from bitter repentance, weeping develops into tears of rapture over divine love. And this is a sign that our prayer is heard, and through its action we are led into new, imperishable life. Spiritual weeping is a phenomenon of a heavenly order. Try as I may, I cannot recall ever crying as an adult, although my lifespan has coincided with all the terrible events of our century. Many a time have I found myself not only in difficult situations, but in mortal danger. But when light was manifest to me and I saw the depths of my fall, weeping which I could not stop took hold of me, weeping that despair made insuperable. At first I wept for myself, appalled at my degradation. Later on I wept over people unaware of God. I was flooded with compassion for them in their disastrous ignorance. And on Manathos, especially in the desert during the Second World War, I would weep bitter tears for the world at large. For a long while I was haunted by the thought, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. It is dreadful to be bereft of God. Without the God of love, nothing makes sense. The soul sees herself hurled into the darkness of death, 1 Corinthians 13.1-3. The horror of this pitch darkness lies in the fact that it is not only outside me, but inherent in me. But when the uncreated light releases me from my inner hell, then all passions departs, 
and I realize that the Almighty Lord can make even me like Him, a Lord free from any extraneous power, invulnerable to any and every evil. The changes in my inner state altered the character of my weeping. Sometimes both heart and mind would know a marvelous peace, and tears became sweet because of love. But when the Spirit of the Lord retreated and the breath of immortal life died away, a kind of distress, alarm even, invaded my heart. Prayer would become a wearisome despair, and for hours I would lay face to the ground. Worn out, I would cross to my hard couch. The tears would continue to fall, while weariness silenced the mind. I would prefer to speak of these happenings quite unassumingly, but then my reader might miss the mighty force of such phenomenon, which undoubtedly exceed the measure of man, for they are a gift from on high. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4.24 Christ's words in spirit and in truth admit of dual interpretation, the spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, John 15.26, and a spirit of truth in the man who confesses his sins, 1 John 1.8-10. The Holy Spirit descends upon man who, as the image of God, by the action of the divine truth himself becomes true. Our existential union with the God of love presupposes the harmonious confluence of two wills, God's and man's. Such union takes place in a state of love. God, the personal spirit, and man, qua persona, are joined in one in the eternal act of divine life. Thus do we come to know God. Acquiring this love is the ultimate purpose of Christian asceticism. Its achievement demands long and arduous travail. But by a gift from on high, one can experience a divine visitation in great strength at times when the soul, in a burst of repentance for her sins, becomes receptive to the coming of God. However, these preliminary visitations do not mean that once and for all we have achieved the state of salvation. They are still only the unrighteous mammon which may be taken away for unfaithfulness. It is impossible to preserve this grace, to continue faithful in all things that it has taught us without years of profound weeping. Luke 16, 9-12 Whoever thinks otherwise would not find himself in agreement with the fathers. We must strive to continue in the tradition of holiness that we have inherited from them. The way of the Lord is this. He manifests himself to man and man apprehends his love in the uncreated light, in timeless mode. I keep harping on the word love, but ontologically it contains wisdom not of this world and grandeur infinite in its boundless humility, all-conquering beauty, and deep peace. With this love touches man, God thereby makes him a participant in his being. And this there are no earthly words to describe. We are possessed by one single longing to acquire this divine love in such fashion that it becomes our nature, forever inalienable. When God sees that nothing in all the world can separate us from his love, Romans 8, 35-39, there follows a period of trial, arduous indeed, but without which we should remain ignorant of the depths of the created and uncreated forms of being. This is a cruel ordeal. An invisible sword cuts us from the beloved God, from his never-setting light. We are stricken on all levels. 
We simply cannot understand why it is that what seemed in prayer, prayer akin to the Gethsemane prayer, a definitive conjunction of love has given place to the hell of abandonment by God. The answer is to be found in the 12th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews, particularly verses 26 to 29. But firstly and lastly, we have the example, John 13:15, of Christ himself on Golgotha, nailed to the cross. He cried out to the Father, Why hast thou forsaken me? Followed immediately by, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the Spirit. Matthew 27:46, John 19:30. And so the mystery of divine love is revealed to us. Utter self-emptying proceeds the fullness of perfection. Love, the flame of which Christ cast into the soul of man, possesses an amazing attribute. It will lead him into the depths and heights inaccessible to anyone else. It will enable him to master suffering of all kinds, even death itself. Time and again it will hurl him into an indescribable infinity where he will be alone, yearning to behold again the light of the beloved God. Such is the process for cleansing our nature infected by the poison of Lucifer. The way of Christ leads from a relative, constantly facilitating type of existence to an absolute, unshakable kingdom. It is natural that man's spirit should be restless when cut off from the perfect love of the Father, the result of the fall. The image of God, man, seeks holy, immutable, absolute good. And who can describe love for him? Where find words powerful enough to express even a shadow of the grief felt by the soul separated from God? Nothing but sacred love can cause the tears to flow from the Christian's heart. The scriptures write that Jesus, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end, John 13, 1. And only this unto the end, can account for his sweat that fell like great drops of blood as he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Where there is no love, there are no tears. Even when ascetic striving goes to extremes, like exhaustive meditation, prolonged fasting, rigorous living conditions far away from the rest of the world, of all of which both Western Christianity and the non-Christian East provide many instances. When the spirit of humility takes command of us, the tears flow from the depths of our heart. Christ referred to this, weeping when he said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. Comforted how? By the comfort that proceeds from the Holy Spirit, whom Christ called the Comforter. Comfort which is neither psychological nor physiological, but ontological, having to do with divine eternity. Perhaps now we may briefly turn aside from the general theological and ascetical arguments to look in more detail at the century-old experience of the Christian ascetics. Spiritual weeping varies in character depending on the state in which the ascetic finds himself. There are the sweet tears which come with closeness to the God of love embracing the whole man. But more often the weeping is a mixture of joy and sadness. To begin with, repentance brings bitter tears prompted either by the realization of how enslaved we are to sinful passions, or because our feeling of grace is less acute, or there is the sore affliction of being deserted by God. It is possible to weep out of compassion for all humanity, for all creatures even. Each of these forms of spiritual weeping cleanses one from all that pollutes in daily life, 
and renews one's longing for the divine world. Tears of love for God attach one's whole self to the beloved master. Mind, soul, and body, too, all flow together into a powerful current toward the uncreated light. Such weeping shatters the tight coils of earthly existence and carries the spirit into heavenly spheres, liberated from the compulsions of sinful passions. It brings the experience of freedom from passion, of the hallowing of our whole formation. The absence of weeping, according to the teaching of the fathers, signifies that our prayer has not yet attained the first rung on the ladder ascending up to God. However, after the physical tears have drained away, a different form of prayer may be accorded to us, wordless prayer, like a quiet feeling of the grace of the Holy Spirit within us when the peace which passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 7, fills the heart. After bringing the utmost sacrifice of love to God, man is generally taken over by a delicate state of contemplation. Spiritual weeping is an abundance of life springing vigorously from potent love, whereas ordinary weeping prostrates mortal man. Providence has installed me in a country whose people are trained from childhood not to cry, where tears are despised as unworthy of a civilized being. It is impossible not to respect such a culture, but we must not forget that it is meant for those whose feet are firmly rooted in the earth's crust. The ascetic fathers did not weep because they were deprived of temporal goods, but they do insist on the necessity for spiritual weeping, without which man's stony heart is incapable of love as taught by the gospel. The mind of the Christian who weeps is totally directed toward the sphere of divine eternity. The commandments of Christ refer exclusively to this. A whole multitude of circumstances unacceptable to those living the banal life of this world are disregarded by him who weeps according to God's commandment. Poverty holds no terrors for him. He will not be dismayed by insults or slights from the sons of this generation, nor by blows of any sort, because not only his mind but his feet too are lifted high above ground. He feels compassion for people, sorrows over them before God, but he does not share their interests, inspired as he is by this striving after immutable truth. Genuinely, spiritual weeping derives from the Holy Spirit. With it, the uncreated light descends on us. The heart and then the mind find the strength to embrace in themselves the whole universe, to love all creation. Spiritual weeping is not aimless, having no object. It is directed to God and abiding in God. Man in tearful prayer for all humanity feels pity for the whole world. The fathers counsel us to take care of this gift by keeping the commandments, lest we grieve the Holy Spirit through any sort of sin. But it cannot be cultivated because it does not belong to our created nature. It is grace, and the grace of God is not in our control. There are times when out of love we weep profusely, but when we feel deserted by God, tears dry up until only a single drop remains in the eye, like a trickle of warm blood oozing from a wounded heart. If you have not experienced the action of fire from on high, Luke 12, 49, you will not understand this. Again, I venture to remind my reader that ascetics stand with fear before the divine judgment. It is not a transitory affair, but a matter of eternity, either in the light of the countenance of the all-high or in outer darkness, Matthew twenty-five thirty. 
Therefore, ascetic strivers remain indifferent to their earthly circumstances. Their mind is in God, and when this comfort wherewith we are comforted of God, 2 Corinthians 1.4, comes from the Father of lights, he who weeps easily forgives all wrongs done to him, because his spirit is lifted from earth to heaven, and in the Holy Spirit he can love even his enemies. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. Joel 2.12 The Lord himself in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard, and that he feared. Hebrews 5.7 And precisely this path, strong crying and tears, confronts every one of us who aspires to divine eternity. Chapter 5 Wavering in Quest of the Unwavering Christ is living truth. I am the truth and the life. John 14.6 Life without beginning. Life totally unrestricted. Unconditioned. Co-eternal with the Father. Inseparable from the Father. Indissoluble. His love and his light touched me in the dawn of my life. But even this gift of grace did not preserve me from sliding into the dark abyss of the non-existent. As soon as I became adult, I committed a great sin. On a mad impulse of ignorant pride, I abandoned him in favor of another imaginary, superpersonal absolute. Repressing the good habit of praying to the God of my childhood, I spent hours of meditation, aspiring to absolute being. I stripped myself, so it seemed to me, of all that was relative, of all amalgams, visible or invisible, physical or mental. Stubbornly, I went into the darkness of ignorance, in order by divesting myself of everything that was transitory to arrive at what or who transcended the boundaries of all that is inconstant. There were times when I experienced a certain peace and solace, in a more forceful impulse towards the unnameable, all-transcending being, non-being, I saw my mind as light. I did not pursue anything on this earth except the eternal, and at the same time in my painting sought to express the beauty proper to almost every manifestation of nature. It might be supposed that that period of my life was full of inspiration, but I recall it far from pleasurably. Now that I see how at that time I was indulging in a peculiar easing of the mind that was really suicide in the metaphysical sense. I could never have gotten out of this erroneous situation of my own strength, but the Lord had pity and caught up with me, perhaps at the last moment. He performed a miracle of mercy, came into my heart, which for a long while I had tried to disregard. I do not know how to relate in due sequence the spiritual events of those days. Suddenly, as it were, it became obvious to me that my artificial absorption in the abstract mental sphere would not afford me authentic knowledge of the first principle of all principles. My austere putting away of all that was relative had not brought real union with the one I sought. My mystical experiences had been of a negative character. It was not pure being that lay before me, but death, complete and final. The commandment to love God with all thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself, Luke 10, 27, 
in an unexpected fashion occurred to my mind in its evangelical context. Existential fusion with God is effected through love. Thus, what had formerly deflected me from the gospel when love had appeared to be a pitiable psychism that strange day as I walked along a Moscow street, now pierced my heart and mind like the light of true knowledge. Existential union proceeds from the act of love. The gospel conception of love goes incomparably farther than our psychical or sensual comprehension. The God of my childhood returned to me in the light of understanding. Christian life is the conjunction of two wills, the divine, eternally one, and the human, which facilitates. God reveals himself to man in a myriad different ways. He does not compel man. If we accept his approach to us with love, he will often visit the soul with his meekness and humility. It can happen, as the history of the Christian faith testifies, that he may manifest himself to man in great light. The soul, having beheld Christ in the light of his love, is drawn to him. She cannot, she would not wish to resist this impulse. But he is fire consuming us. Every proximity to him involves painful stress. It is natural for us in our fallen state to recoil from pain, and we falter in our determination to follow after him. But to remain outside his light is likewise abhorrent. And so my spirit was faced with the choice between wrongly abasing myself and getting lost in the life of the world around, thus condemning myself to corruption, or accepting Christ's dread summons. When I chose the latter course, I was reborn into life in the living God. The Lord knows with what fear and dread many of the pages of this my confession are written. Now, at the end of my life, I have decided to testify that the words of Psalm 34 have proved true for me on one more occasion. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. O fear the Lord, for there is no want to them that fear him. It is not at all a happy thing to see oneself as a poor man to realize one's blindness. It is painful in the extreme to hear myself condemned to death for being what I am. Yet in the eyes of my Savior, I am blessed because of this very recognition that I am poor in spirit. See Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. This spiritual insight is connected with the kingdom of heaven revealed to us. I must see Christ as he is in order to confront myself with him and thus perceive my deformity. I cannot know myself unless I have his holy image before me. My disgust with myself was and still remains very positive. But my aversion begat prayer of singular desperation which plunged me into an ocean of tears. I could not imagine any possible cure for myself. There was no way of transforming my ugliness into the likeness of his beauty. And this frantic prayer which shook me to the core roused the compassion of the all-high God, and his light began to shine in the darkness of my being. In profound silence, it was given me to contemplate his clemency, his wisdom, his holiness. Through the hell of my hopelessness came heavenly deliverance. New powers opened in me, a different eye, a different ear. I became aware of indescribable splendor. However, all this did not yet belong to me, It was not yet mine. 
I was not through with wavering. I drifted away from the celestial radiance. I returned to my benighted state, and yet without any shadow of a doubt I knew that the holy kingdom of Christ was the eternal reality, to be obtained after prolonged prayer. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, the violent take it by force. Matthew 11:12. We must praise and glorify God when the possibility of perdition, not only temporal but eternal, is revealed to us on the one hand, and on the other hand, the inscrutable light of divinity. The scriptures speak of everlasting punishment, Matthew 25, 46. But what does this mean? We do not yet actually know all the various forms of suffering that may come upon us after our departure from this world. But the same gospel declares that the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8, 12. For myself, I imagine everlasting punishment to mean that we shall appear unworthy to enter into the holy kingdom of divine love, the one place natural to our being. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is how Christ Jesus began his preaching, Matthew 4:17. Repentance begets the strength of life in us, renews the dignity that man lost when Adam fell. Tearful repentance restores our capacity, which sin had destroyed, to receive the uncreated light proceeding from God, from the Holy Trinity. But what did my personal experience show me? It proved to me that long years of weeping over my corpse-like state had not stabilized my life in God. Sin, in one form or another, still triumphed. Every sliding into sin saddens the soul. Moreover, we, I mean I, I'm very often unsure how right I am in my actions or how far I am from a truly holy life. This is especially so when I find myself in conflict with people. We are haunted by the consciousness of our insufficiency and plead to the Lord, forgive me, thine unprofitable servant. Luke 17.10 Of course, as a monk, I am trained to condemn myself for everything, to keep my mind in hell, but this demands much endurance, and only thus can we abate the seesawing so wearying to the heart and mind. Perfect steadfastness is the conclusive gift for eternity of God our Savior. There is no one who could embrace in one eternal act heaven and earth and the nether regions save the only begotten Son co-eternal with the Father. If we follow him, Determined to abide in the spirit of his teaching, there will be moments when we too will be irradiated by light and in prayer embrace the earth, the nether regions, even heaven, and meet eternity. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13.8 Having delighted in the longed-for light of heaven, we then find ourselves in a dreadful predicament. The Holy Spirit leaves our house empty, abandoning us. It had seemed that we had attained the God we sought, that we contemplated the mysteries concealed since before time in the womb of divinity. And now, suddenly we are like naked beggars again. Blessed are we when from the depths of ignorance and death we are transported into wondrous light. But when we fall from the light into our former darkness, our pain is more acute than ever. It takes not a little while before we begin to understand the ways of our God. 
In his infinite love for us, he hungers to communicate his all-embracing plentitude. But it is not for us to imagine acquiring this plentitude in the confines of this earth. Here we are always, as it were, torn, drawn with all our strength to eternity, but convinced of our present body's incapacity to assume and steadfastly bear the fullness. At some point, the light shows infinity to our spirit, but then inevitably recedes. True, somewhere in the depths of our hypostatic being, this light, which appeared in a flash, but is eternal by nature, lingers, seen through a glass, darkly. 1 Corinthians 13.12 The Lord rose from the dead, and his risen body acquires the attributes of the spirit. This means that so long as we are invested with a body not transfigured by resurrection, we cannot avoid painful faltering in our following after Christ. It would be more normal for a man of my age to be preparing for death rather than writing a book. Besides, who am I to be recounting what happened in my life in the sphere of the Spirit? I never had any such idea in the past. Indeed, I was never disposed to reveal my inner life. I considered its course to be the result of my fall, which later showed itself to me in its infernal nature. Many might have seen the inner conflicts that beset me as symptoms of incipient madness, but somehow I knew intuitively that my case lay outside the competence of the dreary science of psychiatry. To appeal to professional doctors would have been a truly unforgivable profanation. On the whole, my days have passed without much outside contact. Because of this, I do not quickly arrive at conclusions. Now, however, I am not afraid of being seriously mistaken. Supposing, as I do, that in our time millions of people of the most widely varying temperament and nationality live in a tragic merry-go-round of contradictions to one extent or another similar to mine. To become acquainted with a concrete case like mine may for some of them even prove helpful. The spiritual life of every Christian has a specific rhythm or progression peculiar to him alone. But at the root of all, there is the one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11, and consequently the same ultimate purpose as contained in the commandments of Christ, summed up in the bidding, be ye therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. Hence the experience of one may coincide with that of many of the same faith engaged in the ascetic struggle at different times and in different circumstances not only interior, but external also. The same commandment of perfection is given for all eras, to all people. The commandments of the absolute transcend all that is conditional or relative. This spiritual life of the Christian is an exclusively dynamic nature. Never static, its manifestations are innumerable. On the one hand, this demonstrates its amplitude, on the other, it is an indication of the perfection we have not yet achieved. In the life of the very divinity of the Holy Trinity, the dynamic and the static merge into a unity that passes our understanding. And this unity contains the real stability as promised to all who genuinely repent. The world is fast approaching the moment when we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye 
when the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, when things that are shaken are removed, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. See 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Peter 3, Hebrews 12, 26 and following, and the book of the Revelation, chapter 21, verse 1. To man will be given to dwell in divine fastness, and this is verily eternal rest. Chapter 6, The Bliss of Knowing the Way In the early days of my life on Manathos, I remember asking one of the hermits to talk to me about prayer. Discerning in my request a wish to hear about prayer at its most sublime, he replied, Let us discuss what we are capable of. To talk of what is beyond us would be idle chatter. I felt ashamed but still ventured to say, I really do want to know about more perfect prayer, prayer that surpasses me, not because I am pretentious, no, but because it seems to me vital to glimpse a guiding star to check whether I am on the right path. In ancient times, mariners took their bearings by an incredibly remote star. In the same way, I should like to have a true criterion, however out of reach, so that I shall not be content with the little I have so far discovered. The holy man agreed that this was not only permissible, but right and proper. As a young man, I was constantly tormented by an urgent need to understand why I had been born into this world. Where are we all going? What could we attain to? Where is our end? To be ignorant of all this is an unbearable nightmare, a perpetual torture. The object of my quest was a noble one, but at the very thought of the sheer unattainability of the one whom I sought, I would lose all inspiration and despair would envelop my soul. Better than I had never been born. Outwardly calm, inwardly I twisted and turned. I did not avoid alien, non-Christian paths, but everywhere lay darkness. Eventually regenerated, I met with Christ, who had said, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John 16.33 Likewise, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Matthew 11.12 and he filled my heart with inspiration which has never since deserted me. Though not over-intimidated by difficulties, I realized the foolishness of daring to follow after him. To overcome the world? To make Christ's victory my victory, which is what each of us is called to? If he said of himself that he was the way, then it cannot be ruled out that at some time or other we shall be forced to engage in single combat against the entire universe. Was He was not forsaken by all, even by the Father, Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. The uniqueness of Christ's teaching was soon revealed to me. On the one hand, I am painfully conscious of my nothingness. On the other, I aspire to eternal God. Prayer to Him keeps the spirit steadfast before the face of the absolute, not my old abstract philosophical conception, but a living and personal absolute. Christ is revealed as having descended into hell and then risen into heaven, sitting on the right hand of the Father, containing in himself all the fullness of being. And he is our way. O Israel, happy are we, 
for things that are pleasing to God are made known unto us. Be of good cheer, my people. Apocrypha Baruch 4, 4-5 And we Christians are endowed by God vastly more than were all the prophets and righteous men before Jesus is coming on earth. When we realize this, we lift our voices and exclaim aloud, Blessed are we, the new Israel, hallowed Christians, for the Lord himself hath desired so to be united with us that he and we are become one. John 17, 21-23 The very Lord bore witness to this. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear, and have not heard them. Matthew thirteen sixteen to 17 St. Peter wrote that to the prophets it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit, sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. 1 Peter 1, 12 And St. Paul asserts that knowledge of the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that to him had been given grace to proclaim to the people the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. Ephesians 3, 5, 8-9. Likewise, St. Peter, he stresses that profundity of the mystery even to the principalities and powers and heavenly places, the manifold wisdom of God must be made known by the church according to the eternal purpose which the Father purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Ephesians 3, 10-12 It is natural for us to be drawn to the supreme good, but our progression must begin with a descent into the abyss of hell. St. Paul having repented of his past, says of Christ, Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Ephesians 4, 9-10 And this is precisely our route after the fall. We are conscious of descending into hell, since from the moment the image of pre-eternal man is shown to us, we are more sharply aware of the depths of our benighted state. Our whole self is stricken with grief. The timeless anguish of the spirit surpasses any and every pain of the body. With all our might we pray for help from on high. Slaves of passion, cut off from God, out of the depths we cry, Come and heal me from the depths and from the death which holds me fast. Come and drive out the evil in me. Come and do thy will in me, for I am powerless to perform any good deed. I am captive in darkness, hateful to me. Pride is both wickedness and darkness. Pride lies at the root of every sin. The Lord began his mission on earth with a call to repentance. The Greek word for repentance, metania, betokens a radical change in our attitude to the whole of life, a transition from our previous philosophy to a converse iconographic perspective. Through humility, 
ascent to the All-High, since through pride we fell into the darkness of hell. Thus does our repentance begin, which has no end on earth. The end is perfect likeness to the Christ God, Theanthropos, ascended to the Father. Our divinization, our theosis, lies in perfect godlike humility. When God draws us to him, prayer of sorrowful repentance becomes all-devouring. Mind and heart are consumed with longing for the holy of holies, for the Lord. And suddenly there is a miracle, something unthought of, unheard of, that has never happened before, even in the heart. 1 Corinthians 2.9 A ray of the uncreated sun penetrates the blackness of the abyss wherein I lie. Is it possible to speak of the light of this sun? It comforts the grieving soul in his own peculiar manner. It brings peace to the agitated heart. It illumines the mind, the new vision. The soul that was dying is filled with imperishable life. Our spirit yearns after the Father's love. Our psychosomatic formation enters into this prayer but can only go so far. When the heart is consumed with thirst for God, prayer purifies us from all that is extraneous and concentrates our longing for the Lord whom we seek. When this happens, we may lose all awareness of our body and the material world around us. I cannot say how this occurs, but I do know that it has not been given to every man to cross this threshold. Many, having reached the border, take fright and draw back. Others, engrossed in their prayer, do not notice anything and in and in a way which they remain ignorant of, are caught up into another sphere of being and forget the earth. The divine hand performs this with such caution that man does not detect the moment itself, just as one does not catch the moment of falling asleep. It is only after his return to his normal awareness of the world that he realizes that his spirit had departed from its usual state and had been united with God. After such an event, all the things of the earth are seen as transient and brittle. The soul recognizes that the point of her existence is to be with God in him, in his eternity. I once read a newspaper account of an engineer testing the jet engine of a plane who carelessly stepped into the airstream, which caught and lifted him high off the ground. Seeing what had happened, his assistant quickly switched off the engine the mechanic fell to the ground, dead. Something similar happens to the man of prayer. After being caught up into another sphere, he returns to earth dead, to fleshly interests and worldly gains. He will not seek any career. He will not be too upset if he is rejected, nor will he be elated by praise. He forgets the past, does not cling to the present or worry about his earthly future. A new life full of light has opened before him and in him. The infantile distractions that occupy the vast majority of people cease to interest him. And if we judge the quality of life, not by the quantity of pleasurable psychophysical sensations, but by the extent of our awareness of cosmic realities and, most important of all, of the first and last truth, we shall understand what is hidden behind the words of Christ, my peace I give unto you, said to the apostles only a few hours before his death upon the cross. The essence of Christ's peace is perfect knowledge of the Father. So it is with us. 
If we know the eternal truth lying at the root of all being, then all our anxieties affect merely the peripheral of our existence, while within us reigns the light of life coming down from the Father of lights. James 1.17 No temporary ease can afford us genuine peace if we continue in ignorance of the principle of all principles. Not many souls have the courage to step off the path trodden by the vast majority in this fallen world, to live according to Christ's commandments. Unquestioning belief in the divinity of Jesus naturally generates spiritual courage. In their eagerness to follow the Lord, some believers have suddenly found themselves on the edge of an abyss, too late to draw back. However, we have all got to cross the abyss in order to attain to divine eternity. But what is it exactly that I have in mind? I am thinking of the deep pit of ignorance, the hopeless anguish of those condemned to death, the power over us of the blackness of this world. See 1 Timothy 1.13, Genesis 2.17, and Luke 22.53. To continue, to get across this black pit, we need the energy of blessed despair. The action of grace in us takes the form of determination. The light is seen in the distance. Drawn to it with unsuspected strength, we decide to hurl ourselves into the unknown, having called upon the sacred name of Jesus Christ, God our Savior. And what happens? Instead of having our heads smashed against the rocks, hidden in the darkness, an invisible hand appears to carry us gently across the gulf. Without this friendly hand of the living God, not one of us could hold out against the storms and vicissitudes that beset the soul at such times. Formed of the dust of the ground, we make up a tiny fraction of the massive body of mankind from which it is not at all easy to escape, especially in our day when practically the whole universe is under the control of officialdom in general. One cannot appeal to the princes of this world for help. A small good turn from them and we risk losing our liberty. John 14.30 Our best gamble is a childlike trust in God's providence in the pursuit of a life where first place is given to Christ. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Deuteronomy 5.18 But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed already adultery in his heart. But I say unto you, Swear not at all. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Whosoever shall break one of the least of these commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. See Matthew chapter 5. I went in dread of breaking the Lord's commandments, and so perishing. At that painful but blessed time to live according to the gospel commandments, for me, 
meant walking a tightrope stretched between two precipices. After a short while, this changed into a vision of the arms of Christ on the cross, stretched out to draw into a whole, a world split by enmity between its peoples. It was all so far beyond me that I felt crucified by Christ's teachings. In despair I prayed, and then I saw the body of the Lord hanging like a marvelous bridge between heaven and earth. The way for the Christian is crucifixion. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23 For the soul this means both the subtle joy of knowing the way and considerable dismay at the immensity of the task. Words cannot describe the terrible privilege of walking the mysterious tightrope. By the same token, those who have departed into the next world do not try to appear to us who are still in the flesh to tell of the mystery waiting us in the new sphere. Uniting in himself both God and man, the Lord calls us to follow after him. On this exalted path, our spirit, having overcome the passions that drag us down, contemplates the hitherto unknown, unimaginable realities of the divine sphere of being. Just as a heavenly body projected beyond the gravity of the earth finds itself subject to celestial mechanics and moves with a speed impossible on earth, so our spirit enters into the infinity of noetic space pierced by light-bearing witness to the unoriginate truth and our immortality. The touch of divine love on the heart signals the first step on the shore of the heavenly side of the abyss and new birth from on high into eternity. This love is apprehended as truth, as light, as the kingdom. All thought of death, of enemies, of what pertains to this earth disappears from our consciousness and thus liberated the spirit lives another form of being. On return to her customary condition, the soul feels sad at her loss. She would have preferred not to come back, though the sensation of divine love is not quite gone. Christ gave us everything. He revealed to us the glorious mystery of the Holy Trinity. He showed us the Father, see John fourteen eight to 9 Through him we receive and experience knowledge of the Holy Spirit, and can an infallibly determine when it is he, the third person proceeding from the Father, who is acting in us, and not some other spirit which might seem sovereign to the inexperienced. Through Christ and in him, we have a momentously positive expression of man answering to his primordial image and likeness to God. Now there is no longer in us anything or anyone else that could be the foundation of our being, either here on earth or in eternity. And Christ's words, All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, John 10.8, ring true for us in the clear understanding that has been given to us. But we must interpret them in the same perspective as that of the other proposition, A man's foes shall be they of his own household, Matthew 10.36, and they of our own household love us, and we love them, but we must not listen when they would prevent us from surrendering to God, insofar as they would dissuade us from the one true way. They become our foes. They are thieves and robbers. By living according to the gospel commandments, we gradually, though painfully, find solutions to many of the age-old problems that confront mankind. Marvel not, it really is so. 
In him lies salvation for every separate individual. In him lies salvation for those who are united in his name, and so for whole peoples, for the whole world. There is not and cannot be any situation wherein he is powerless to save. In saying this, I do not mean that he will without fail heal this or that malady, deliver us from some disaster or other physical, moral, or material, or from our oppressors or anything else generally considered harmful or destructive, although all that lies in his hands too. Genuine salvation means in all circumstances standing firm in his love, as he himself kept his Father's commandments and abode in his love. John 15.10 We all know what trials the Lord went through, especially in the last days of his sojourn with us. And yet, immediately before his death, he says to his disciples, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. John 15.11 And later, Verily I say unto you, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Luke 23.43 All love is subject to testing, and true friendship shows up in adversity. When love is stronger than death, it is perfect love. And such trying out, which none of us can avoid, love through death on the earthly plane conquers death in eternity and makes man an inheritor of a kingdom which cannot be moved. Hebrews 12.28 To start with, the Christian's ascetic struggle is concentrated within himself, but ultimately it becomes prayer for the whole world and for Adam. Love's first step is towards God, the second toward his neighbor. Just as the incarnate Son's love for God the Father was unto the end, so his love for man is also unto the end. See John 15.10-15 to 15 and chapter 13 verse 1. And this precisely is the love commanded of us. In their essence, Christ's commandments are the self-revelation of God. Though expressed in seemingly relative terms, whoever would rightly obey them finds himself on the frontier between the relative and the absolute, the finite and the infinite, the determined and the arbitrary. The keeping of these unconstrained prescripts far exceeds our human strength. It is imperative that he himself, the Almighty, who manifested himself to us by his effecting abiding within us, should lead us into his own sphere of unconditional and absolutely unconditioned being. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. John 15.5 Thus speaks the one omnipotent sovereign of all creation. Matthew 28.18 The divine source of the gospel injunctions also reveals that those who keep them, irrespective of their cultural level, apprehend the eternal in their heart. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast revealed these things unto babes. Luke 10.21 To the apostles, babes, in so far as human learning is concerned, Christ gave genuine knowledge of eternal truth. John 17.3 he who knows the Father, which is in heaven, already has eternal life in him. Rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. Luke 10.20 To live as a Christian is impossible. All one can do is die daily, 1 Corinthians 15.31, in Christ, like St. Paul. 
This daily dying, however, is neither easy nor simple. It is the straight gate, the narrow way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Matthew 7.13 The glad tidings of Christ far transcend anything that the earth knows. How heal the terrible sickness with which the serpent infected man at the dawn of his appearance on earth? Genesis 3 How can people be made to see that the utterly uncommon man, the gospel Jesus Christ, is truly God without beginning, the creator of all that is, revealed to Moses with the name I am? Can anyone of sound mind so lose his mind as to acknowledge as God a man who died on the cross hanging between two thieves? What can I say? Those who are positively unable to believe in the divinity of Christ will find no other way of attaining their own divinization. Children are capable of believing as they are pure in heart, or those who for all their recognition of their fallen state, their nothingness, intuitively feel their kinship with God. He who believes in Christ believes in his own divinization. Belief or disbelief depends on an elevated or de depreciated conception of man. For the believer, Christ's death on the cross, how and why he was crucified, is the strongest evidence in his favor. Look how St. Paul, who had persecuted him, saw it. Christ sent me, he says, to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto the saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, manifest in the creation, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. Now we have received the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 17-25, and chapter 2, verses 6-12. to To continue, we are faint-hearted, but Christ bids us, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John 16.33 If he overcame the world, in Greek the cosmos, it means that even as man he became supracosmic, transcending this world. And everyone who believes in him, who conquers in the ascetic feet of repentance, the law of sin which is in our members, Romans 7.23, also becomes supracosmic like Christ. Father, the words which thou gavest me and the glory which thou hast given me, I have given them. Father, I will that they also, 
whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which I had with thee before the world was. John 17, 8, 24, 5. In order to contemplate this glory, it is essentially oneself to be in this glory. In order to understand, even if only partly, who this is, we must become like him by abiding in the spirit of his commandments. The man who has not followed him with absolute faith, who has not come to love him with his whole heart and mind, and so has not observed his word, must not presume to judge him or pronounce concerning him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 He should keep an honest silence, since he is unfit to judge of the Son of God and word of the Father. Just as in the realm of science or the arts, one must not be too remote from the artist or the scientist if one is to appreciate his genius. So it is in the realm of the spirit. But the man who has based his life on the rock of his teaching, Matthew seven twenty four and following, will gradually come to understand who this is. Christ said, No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whom whosoever the Son will reveal him. Matthew eleven twenty seven. We may conclude then that souls do exist to whom the Son reveals knowledge of the Father. Quote, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. The Father therefore does draw one. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John six forty four and fourteen six. So one comes to the Father through Christ. Man is indeed a great mystery. Created from nothing, he is lifted up to the fullness of uncreated being. God so loved man that he gives himself without measure, without limit. Just as God transcends the whole of cosmic reality, so man divinized through the coming into him of the Holy Spirit is more precious than all the galaxies. This is the way the Christian feels. Otherwise, he could not walk worthy of the vocation wherein he is called. Ephesians 4.1 Is not such temerity a sign of excessive pride? Certainly not, if we follow Christ's example. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you, John 13, 15. If we tread in the steps of the apostles and fathers, be you followers of me, even as I also am of Christ, said St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. The 16th chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel sets out this teaching in full. Quote, Jesus asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some of them, that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth 
began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter, ignorant as yet of the mysteries of the ways of our salvation, began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. End of quote. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28. This extract from the gospel provides us with the radical, vital features of the straight gate and narrow way which leadeth unto life. When many of the people started to honor Christ as a great prophet, and the apostles accepted him as the Son of the living God, he began to show unto his disciples his imminent sufferings and death. Countering P Peter's natural human reaction with a decisive, Get thee behind me, he went on to expound the necessity for all who would follow him of taking up the cross, even going so far as to declare that whoever would save his soul for eternity in the kingdom must lose his life in this world. The importance of the soul in such is such that if the price of gaining the whole world impairs her on the divine plane, all the treasures of the earth will not make up for the spiritual damage incurred. He builds his church, against which the gates of hell shall not prevail, on the confession of his divinity. If we detract from the fullness of his divinity, then neither the church nor anything else can overcome the world or the abyss of hell. And he goes on to speak of his eternal glory and power, which will be revealed to some standing there at the time, a dictum fulfilled on Mount Tabor, where Christ prayed and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem, in Luke 9.31, where the uncreated light of the Holy Spirit shone on the apostles, and they saw Moses and Elias as servants of the Lord, and heard the searchless voice of the Father, testifying to Christ's eternal sonship. Almost concurrently, descent into hell and infinite glory, and this is the way for Christians. They condemn themselves to torment and in return receive the gift of the Father's mercy, which there are no words to describe. Such is the abundance of life brought to us by Christ, John 10.10. Christ's life embraces both hell and the kingdom. It incorporates in itself extremes of suffering with the heights of bliss. It makes the little man great, universal, godlike in all things. Unhappily, few there be that find it. Matthew 7.14 The Father's gifts are more than we can bear. When immeasurable strength descends on mortal man, it may happen that Lucifer, who fell in the paroxysms of his pride, will approach. How can we avoid this fall? 
Here too we have Christ's example to teach us when he was tempted in the desert. We remember his words again, And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. Matthew 11.23 In order to depict our Christian path more clearly, let us adopt the method of the fathers and make an analogy. When we look at the ancient tree, reaching high up to the clouds, we know that its roots deep in the ground must be correspondingly powerful. If the roots did not stretch down into the dark depths of the earth, as deep perhaps as the tree is high, if the mass and strength of the roots did not parallel the size and weight of the visible part of the tree, they could not nourish the tree or keep it upright. The lightest breeze would blow it down. So it is in man's spiritual life. If we recognize the greatness of our calling in Christ, that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, see Ephesians 1.4, by the eternal divine providence to receive the adoption of sons, Galatians 4.5, we shall be not puffed up, but genuinely humble. A downward movement into the blackness of hell is indispensable for all of us if we are to continue steadfast in the Christian spirit. So we must be ever conscious of our primeval nothingness, continually condemning ourselves harshly in all things. And the more man abases himself in self-condemnation, the higher will God exalt him. I tell you, everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Luke 18.14 Vast numbers of people with no experience of the beneficial action of prayer do not know that a world of indescribable magnitude is disclosed to the spirit of man through prayer. Prayer unfolds both the dark depths of hell and the luminous heavenly spheres. Without faith in the resurrection, almost all suffering is unmeaning, pointless. It may subdue the obstinate soul, but does not cure her of pride hidden in her depths. Suffering may enrich one's experience, but in the absence of prayer, it does not rid the soul of passion. Suffering gradually destroys the body, the heart, and the mind, without perfecting them in the knowledge of God. But when the light of supreme being approaches the soul, all is changed. Earthly passions die away, and the spirit rises to contemplation of the eternal. The man endowed with this blessing regards worldly status, whether social, material, or even cultural, as a sort of temporary extra, and does not worry about a career. And if he persists in his humble opinion of himself, the more knowledge will he be given of the mysteries of the world to come. Uniting himself through prayer with Christ, man within himself, in his heart and mind, is made aware that in eternity the whole content of the Theanthropos of the God-man will be given to him imprescriptibly. Because of this, every good deed on the part of anyone whomsoever gladdens him here and now with the joy of salvation for all. Luke 15, 31-32 A brother's renown will be his renown. He will delight in seeing others glorified by divine light. And the more radiant they are, the lovelier the vision. In the kingdom to come of the saints, there is a wealth of love, of which God grants us a foretaste here on earth. Divine love embraces hell, too. And we know now that our descent into hell in the course of this life is the true road to perfection. There are two stages to victory over hell. 
The first is the mastery of the blackness within us ourselves. The second, compassionate love, natural to divinity for all creation. Yea, this love through the Holy Spirit is conveyed to all who are saved. Eternity knows no duration of time, but contains in itself the full compass of the centuries. Eternity without space includes in itself all the expanses of the created world. Through our earthly experience, though our earthly experience is incomplete, we know in part it is nevertheless reliable. St. Paul tells us, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known by God. And now abideth faith, the beginning of love, hope, the ripening of love, charity, the perfection of love. But the greatest of these is charity. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-13 Knowing the way keeps us alive even in hell, but it does not make our suffering imaginary. We are benighted by the passions, like all the heirs of fallen Adam, but we are not devoured by the flames of hell. We despair not. We must not be overdaunted by this plunge into darkness, since without it, after the fall, fullness of knowledge is unattainable. However successful a man may be in his chosen field of science, he must never lose sight of the fundamentals of the root propositions of his subject. Similarly, while in this body we cling firmly to the method taught us by our fathers and the action in us of the divine spirit, the law of sin is still active in us, and with anger and detestation toward ourselves we condemn ourselves to hellfire, since there is no other fire that could extinguish the working of the passions in us. And what happens? When sorrowful prayer consumes the heart and endurance fails, suddenly there is a cool breath of heavenly comfort. When awareness of our perishability plunges our spirit into hopelessness, Suddenly new strength descends on us from on high and clothes the soul in incorruption. 1 Corinthians 15.54 When thick darkness fills us with dread, in some inexplicable manner the wondrous light turns night into bright day, lifts us on high, and leads us like sons into the Father's house. How explain such apparent contradictions? Why does our angry self-condemnation justify us before God? May it not be that in this recognition of the mighty power of sin that imprisons us, there is existentially genuine truth. And this, our repentance, reaching back to the source of the world's tragedy, Genesis chapter 3, opens a place within us for the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, which leads us restored into the light of the kingdom. How wondrous are the divine ways. Man himself cannot uncover them, but the Spirit, proceeding from God by His appearance, illumines us for us this ineffable approach to eternal salvation. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of me. He will guide you into all truth. Luke fifteen twenty six and 16, verse 13. 
impossible not to sing hymns of praise unto God when we emerge from the flames of repentance that unremarked transport us to a new mode of being, having consumed all that was perishable in us, that weighed us down like a heavy burden. Who can describe what it is like to be caught in this fire? To whom and how can one propose this experience? To wish each and every man that he may rise into divine being is natural, but who will endure the torments of hell without falling into utter despair? When I look at myself condemned to live in this appalling century, I am inclined to think that for many of my contemporaries there may be no other solution. I have made bold to speak more than once of my own experience, that prayer of total repentance before our Creator meets with every trial possible for beings created in the image of God. The image of man and his likeness to the Lord state clear that, that each of us may become a Lord only by overcoming the world, not of course through our own strength, but by faith in Christ, First John 5, 4-5, and John sixteen thirty three. In the book of Job, Septuagint version 1, verse 7, we read, And the Lord said to the devil, Whence art thou come? And the devil answered the Lord and said, I am come from compassing the earth and walking up and down in the world. There is nowhere on earth, nor in the whole universe, where it is possible to avoid encounter with the devil. And if the devil controls not only our world, but all the rest of creation as prince of this world, wherever we happen to be geographically and spiritually, he will come and put us to the test. Discussing this, Blessed St. Siloan said, Mind wrestles with mind, our mind with the mind of the enemy. Even to Christ in the wilderness the devil came to tempt him, Matthew 4, 1-11, Luke 4, 1-14. But before his prayer in Gethsemane, the Lord said to his disciples, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. John 14.30 What exactly is my point? This, that at every stage of our ascent to God, the enemy will pursue and tempt us. And when we ail in every part of our being, when we give ourselves over to proud thoughts, he endeavors to turn us away from God. During the actual period of trial, the soul cannot accept it as a manifestation of divine mercy, as a sign of God's trust in her, as God's wish to communicate to man holiness and plentitude of being in himself. The soul knows only one thing. God has abandoned her after having manifested his light to her and thereby has immeasurably increased her sufferings. And when weak and exhausted, she does not find God inclining his mercy toward her, thoughts and feelings come about which it is better to keep silent. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians 6.12 This spirit of wickedness in high places rushes to attack the contrite heart and mind now stayed on God. Brazenly it in invades us, creating the impression that the thoughts and feelings brought by the enemy are our own. Indeed, after the fall, there is something in us that does not respond to demonic suggestions. This engenders such a surge of repentance that our spirit departs from the actual world into mental infinity, there to stand naked and alone before God, in silence discerning the character of our degradation and of divine eternity.
Paul, who had persecuted the church and slain believers, had much to repent of. I presume, not irresponsibly, that this conversion or rapture happened in a surge of desperate repentance. He himself writes about it. I know a man in Christ, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, into paradise, and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. 2 Corinthians 12.2 And to the Romans he wrote, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.35 It is not difficult to conceive that Paul went through the fiery trials that he describes. In my book about St. Siloan, I explored the words of the great apostle in the light of contemporary ascetic experience. And I wrote, quote, His reason would pluck the ascetic striver away from divine love. He cannot contain or accept the law of Christ's spirit, which is foolishness to the natural man. In times of abandonment, such protests can acquire extraordinary strength. The ascetic striver may be distracted from love of God by desire for life or fear of death, by the attractions of worldly pleasures, by illness or hunger, persecution or other suffering, by the eminence and light of other revelations, the profundity and majesty of other conceptions, by the grandeur of various other possessions, or the breath of other possibilities, by the vision of angels and similar heavenly beings, or because of the violence of the powers of evil. It can be stated on firm grounds that the Christian, on his progress towards divine eternity, will meet with a whole series of trials and temptations. All the paths will be familiar to the Christian, but his ways are hidden from the outsider. 1 Corinthians 2.15 I knew that I am nothing worth but still I do not think my pain, my suffering, unworthy of attention. And the Lord who bade us take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, Matthew 18.10, did not disdain my appeal and heard me and saved me out of all my troubles, Psalm 34.6. I was unrestrained in my frantic prayers, audacious even, but he responded softly, gently, without putting my ignorance to shame. Praying, I looked for an answer and at the same time did not dare to rely on one. Beyond all my expectations, he came. The manner of his coming was particularly unexpected. The enemies retired. The Lord conquered both them and me. Strange, for the first time I knew the unspeakable joy of being vanquished. God is searchlessly great. We hear and read of his greatness, but it is quite another matter to live it, this greatness. No one and nothing can in any way diminish his eternal sovereignty, but he, even God, made himself lowly to a degree that we cannot understand. In our frail flesh, 
he obtained absoluteness. Now I know from my own experience, he hungers for our perfection. In sanctioning our grievous struggle against the enemy and against our own selves in our fallen state, he would have us victorious. If we do not abandon him in the worst moments of our humiliation by the enemy, he will most certainly come to us. He is the conqueror, not we. But he will attribute the victory to us because it is we who have suffered. Nature never repeats herself exactly, still less a man, a reasonable being, standardized. All the sons of men have a heart fashioned by God alike. Psalm 33.15 It is the heart given to the person hypostasis, and as such unique. At the last trump, every man will receive a new name forever, known only to God and to him that receiveth it. Revelation 2.17 Thus, although the life of all who are saved will be one like the one kingdom of the Holy Trinity, John 17.11, the personal principle in each of us will never be transferable to anyone else. If the testimony in the book of the Revelation is true, the proposition is understandable that there is and can be no single system, program, or sequence of growth applicable to all of us. But this does not mean that we have no common foundation. So we observe a phenomenon that almost invariably repeats itself in the course of our spiritual life, not in detail, but in principle. To wit, when he turns to God, man receives grace, which accompanies and enlightens him, instructing him in many of the mysteries of life in God. Then, inevitably, grace departs, at any rate in its tangible strength, and God will wait for a response to the gift that he has poured out. This testing of our faithfulness has a dual purpose, firstly and imperatively, to allow us to manifest our freedom and our reasoning power, and to educate and, if possible, perfect the gift of freedom for self-determination in the eternal sphere. And secondly, to give our Heavenly Father the occasion to commit to us all that He has, Luke 15, 31, for our eternal use, since every gift from on high is assimilated by us inescapably through suffering. When we have demonstrated our steadfastness, God comes again and makes His abode forever in the man who has proved Himself able to contain the fire of the Father's love. So then, Though there is no general prescription for life in God, there are certain basic conditions which we must keep in mind if we would make our way intelligently and not be victims to ignorance of the road to salvation. Uh, o God, our Savior, hide not from me the mysteries of the ways of thy salvation. For the Christian, as we see him, the only way to the Father is through the Son. All things that the Father hath are mine. John 16:15 In the eternal birth of the son the father poured into him the plenitude of his being accordingly the son is in all things equal to the father he is the consummate fullness of the revelation of the father he is the life of the father his strength power might kingdom wisdom omniscience creativity love he that hath not seen the Son hath seen the Father. He that hath seen the Son hath seen the Father. Forgive me. John 14, 9. He that hateth the Son hateth the Father also. 
John 15, 23. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 3, 36. Through the Holy Spirit, which proceedeth from the Father and reposes in the Son, we know the Son in his divinity and in the nature of man that he assumed. It is in the Holy Spirit that we live the Father. Every word spoken by Christ is truth beyond human judgment. Everywhere we are shown that the Son, the word of the Father, is unique, unparalleled. And he himself emphasizes this categorically. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, John 10.8. And concerning those who had appeared and were to appear after the coming of Christ, he warned, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24, verse 4 to 5 and verses 23 to 27. There can be no doubting that the Lord stands aloof from all other so-called teachers of mankind. One is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Matthew 23, 8. History tells of many an attempt in the past to relegate Christ to the ranks of other teachers, prophets, and founders of religions. This happens even more so in our day, and we must expect the same in the future. They all have the one thing in common, refusal to accept the divinity of Christ. That is, to recognize his absolute authority, as did the First Ecumenical Council in AD 325. The unoriginate light is communicated to us through the incarnation of the word, the Logos of the Father. When this great mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16, is rejected, one should not expect to receive knowledge of truth. In Christianity, we have the maximum concreteness together with the ultimate inscrutability of God. We eat the body of the incarnate God and drink his blood. Our bodies become members of his body, Ephesians 5.30. In the communion of his word, our human mind merges with the eternal mind of God, 1 John 1, 1-2. Nevertheless, no man hath seen God at any time, 1 John 4.12. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, dwelleth in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, 1 Timothy 6.15-16. God, who in his essence is far beyond all understanding, all naming, all portraying, the Church of Christ knows in her age-old experience. And our fathers through the ultimate experience possible to man, become partakers of this knowledge, which they bequeath to us as a precious, imprescriptible inheritance. Our humble God does not despise our, our nothingness and did not refuse us the blessedness of knowing him in so far as it is possible for mortal man. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Our way to knowledge of God lies not through books, 
but through faith in Christ's word. This faith brings our mind down into the heart, consumed by the flame of love for Christ. We descend into the bottomless ocean, which is the heart of man. We know the arduousness of this immersion, the weight of suffering that it entails. There in the depths, the divine arms embrace us tenderly and lift us to heaven. Apropos, ascent even to heaven is possible if we have the energy of the pain of love. I frequently speak of pain and am often worried that not everyone will rightly understand this ascetic term. The pain I write of is the litmov motif of my life in God. I cannot ignore it. It is not at all like physical or mental pain, although it often includes these inferior forms. It is the pain of the love of God which detaches the one who is praying from this world to transport him into another. The fiercer the spiritual pain, the more vigorous the attraction to God. The more dynamic our plunge into the depths of the shoreless ocean of suffering, the surer our spirit's ascent into heaven. When the spirit is introduced into the radiant sphere of the heavenly pains, heavens, pain is transformed into the equally unbearable joy of love victorious. Again, in essence, we have the same thing, extreme suffering coupled with utmost joy. This is exactly what happens to the man who repents. The Holy Spirit transports him to unforeseen frontiers, which he experiences a foretaste of divine universality. Consider Christ, how he lived on earth after the fall of Adam. In him, divine power was combined with the weakness of the flesh. Something similar happens with us. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 What the Lord is by his essential divinity, men have through grace. And he who is like unto Christ in his earthly manifestations is naturally like unto him on the divine plane too. Spiritual suffering is a reality which cannot be measured and is invisible to the majority. Divine love begets in us a whole gamut of different torments for the spirit, which can be discussed only on supernatural metaphysical lines. Outwardly, those so afflicted may live in circumstances no worse than other people's, but their soul finds no satisfaction in wealth, luxury, privilege, power, or even fame in this world. The soul pulling away from her normal confines and stretching up to the eternal God suffers. Having felt the breath of the Holy Spirit, she sorrows more acutely. The first thing the Lord said when he emerged from his 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.17 He himself is this kingdom. And lo, we people see him. He stood before us so close that we could not only see but feel him with our hands, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. And when the tangible form of the preternal God and the greatness of his love wounds our soul, we can never forget the miracle. The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Matthew thirteen, forty-four to 46 
In these parables, the Lord is speaking of what I have in mind at this moment. Having seen in spirit the beauty of God, man abandons all that he has on this earth in order to acquire the treasure, the pearl. When the Holy Spirit manifests in uncreated light, the divine reality, the soul needs courage to credit the vision given her, which far surpasses anything that happens in everyday life. He who has had this experience recognizes the Virgin Mary's hesitation at the Archangel Gabriel's message. Only after she realized the suffering entailed in her service to the world could she respond, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into the city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Having received this confirmation of the veracity of the revelation given her, Mary the Theotokos said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Luke 1, 38-47 And when they saw him, they, the disciples, worshipped him. But some doubted, Matthew 28 since what had happened was too much for man to take in. The uncreated light, to begin with, shows us the state we are in, which is appalling, and we descend in our consciousness into the abyss of our hell and see ourselves in our degradation as we are. But when the light comes after another fashion, now in glory the humbled soul wants God to take her in his hands and give her strength to bear the ineffable gift. Sin begins with delectation and ends in tragic downfall. Deliverance from the power of sin over us starts with painful repentance, but the end is joyous victory. More than once have I heard people say, I am ready to accept religion if it will bring me happiness. But they expect happiness from the very outset of their believing, which is not always possible. Yet the same people will put up with all sorts of difficulties to make a base for themselves for their striving after their daily bread or, or for some advantage over others. Artists who would perfect themselves in their chosen field have to struggle even harder. Poets, painters, writers, and musicians often willingly throughout their lives undergo every sort of deprivation for the sake of their art. So will the man who has been singled out for contact with the heavenly fire be even more prepared to endure all things. Let us consider Christ's teachings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are they blessed now or only in the kingdom to come? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 5, 3-12. Is it possible to make all this come true without a tremendous battle against one's passions, without bitter weeping, much sorrow, searing distress, 
Of course not. But however strange it may seem, the luminous rays from the heavenly kingdom begin to reach us the moment we start to believe in Christ God. Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. Luke 18.29 and Mark 10.30 Everything that the Lord speaks of is acquired by much suffering on the part of the soul-seeking God, drawn to him by the power of love. This love directs man's spirit to God with such force that many of his old reflexes and reactions cease to affect him. Man's spirit stands as mind, noose, before the first noose, divested of all that is visible, that is transient. Ascetics term this state pure prayer. In pure prayer, man is outside all earthly categories. He is not old nor young, neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither rich nor poor, learned nor ignorant, and neither male nor female. He is a new creature in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15, and 3 verses 26 to 28. When his repentance reaches the utmost limits, the Christian begins to wrestle against the prince's the prince of this world, John 12.31. The enemy's mind is of cosmic dimensions. An invisible struggle goes on between us. It may be asserted without contradiction that the Christian who thoroughly repents will encounter all the content, all the content of the spiritual world. It must be thus because repentance approximates man to the likeness of Christ as Lord of all. In order that fullness of likeness to God and his signatory be imparted to him, man is tested at every level. He will be confronted with manifold visions, including possibly non-Christian mystical experiences, but he meets with all of them in, as it were, inverse perspective. What adherents of other dis dis disciplines seek and strain after, what they accept as truth, the Christian sees as a falling away from true life. The divine light that has appeared to him shows him the bottomless pit of hell, but in such a way that he discerns the phantoms of truth that attract the inexperienced ascetic. Take heed that no man deceive you. Matthew 24, 4. On alien paths, the states of the Christian spirit are unknown, especially so is the love proceeding from on high to envelop all creation in suffering. Love for God may stab at us like a sword thrust in the heart, but still another but. The pain dissolves into inexpressibly sweet and verily all-embracing love. It is clear then that both pain per se and joy without pain would be fatal for our psychosomatic organism. In my final analysis, after long years of penitent prayer, I am convinced that it would be an irreparable mistake to confuse the pain of the love of Christ that I have described with manifestations of a pathological kind. The sufferings of one who repents are neither a nervous disorder nor the consequence of unsatisfied desires of the flesh, neither the result of psychological conflict or loss of mental control. There is nothing at all pathological about them. Absolutely not. By their nature, these sufferings belong to another plane of being. In certain initial periods, 
they affect the entire man, that is both his soul and his body, so that the whole entity suffers. But spiritual travail in connection with God quickens and does not destroy. By this means, man is victorious over the consequences of the fall and is delivered from the law of sin, which is in his members. Romans 7.23 The way to rebirth, to a return to our primordial state, is not easy. But there is no justifying any skirting of the ascetic effort required. Let me take as an illustration our epoch with its revolutionary movements. The experience of the last half century or more has proved convincingly to the whole world how difficult and painful it is to change from one inequitable social order formed in the dreadful circumstances of the fall of humanity to another likewise distanced from divine truth but seemingly less harsh. In this fearful struggle, millions of people will accept any risk, including death itself, and everyone understands them. May we not take this as a parallel to justify the risk run by the Christian ascetic. Yes, indeed. It is not a simple or easy matter to transform our life from corruption to incorruption, from the temporal to the immortal. We must choose one of two paths, either in our pursuit of psychophysical delights and comfort, shun God and so die spiritually, or in our striving for a supernatural form of being, let ourselves die to this world. In this dying lies our cross, our crucifixion. Many perish in their efforts to attain their ideal, though it be only a question of temporal triumph. But the Christian, in the freedom found in God for his immortal spirit, is ready to suffer in order to realize the supreme truth. In this lies the virtue of the Christian, the like of which is not met with in the natural world. Quote, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Revelations chapter 12 verse 7 to 12. To love God to the point of hatred for oneself is perfect love. Greater love Hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John fifteen thirteen. This is to love unto the end. He who approaches this noble threshold has found the door into the kingdom which cannot be moved. Hebrews twelve twenty eight. If we would obtain this kingdom, we must remember that every spirit created in the divine image will have to cross the threshold of suffering, voluntary suffering for the sake of holy love. Without this testing of our freedom, we cannot realize ourselves as truly free persons. On the other hand, in order to abide forever with God and in God, we must learn the love natural to him. Christ, the incarnate Logos of the Father, revealed this mystery to us. Without his example, no one would have ever known this sacrament. To cross the threshold means to be born again, radically, to become a new creature, it means to receive the gift of divine eternity, 
Godlike life will come to our to be our inalienable possession. Uncreated grace is so joined to our created nature that the two become one, and this is divinization, theosis. The bliss of knowing the way includes all that we have been discussing. The Christian who keeps these things in mind will endure the fiery trial, see 1 Peter 4.12, maybe even joyously, like the holy martyrs. Not to be aware of this is dangerous, since the soul may waver in her love toward God, in her trust in him, at such moments of temptation and refuse to follow Christ to Golgotha. To summarize this truly noble doctrine of the Spirit, we must overcome all earthly suffering by immersing ourselves in even more profound suffering. Keep thy mind in hell. We must condemn ourselves to hell as unworthy of God, but we must despair not. This ascetic effort will lead to victory over the world. See John 16.33. It will bring us to the kingdom which cannot be moved. Hebrews 12.28. Is there a limit to this noble science on earth? We have the answer in Christ who conquered death by death. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this day forth and forevermore. End of chapter 6. Amen.